All right, let's get into it. Man, it's it's been a while. Um, I've received multiple messages over the past year or so about when the next episode is going to come out. And the truth is that I've just been busy living life, you know, enjoying family time and spending time with my friends and family in the woods and on the water. So um, I'm here to say, though, I'm excited to do a few episodes. Uh, so be on the lookout for some more to come here in 2023. So officially, welcome back to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Broadus, and I believe this is episode number 15. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down to talk with John Burroughs and Jeff Reardon of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Um, If you don't know about ASF, they've, they've been a leader in river and fisheries restoration work in Maine for decades, and they have worked with many partners to achieve some of the most consequential dam removals in our history. The Edwards Dam on the Kennebec in 1999, as well as working on the Penobscot River Restoration Project, which is just getting better and better. So um, the real focus of our conversation was to talk about the potential removal of four dams on the Kennebec River to help restore Atlantic salmon and multiple other species of oceanic fish like shad, herring, and alewives, to name a few of them. Um, I've been following this story somewhat closer the past couple of years, but like many of you probably listening, I, I knew some things, but there's so much that I had no idea about. And there are probably things I still don't know about. Um, you know, personally, I was for the dam removal for the fish sake, um, but I was against it as well, you know, for the people of Skowhegan who work in the mill. Um, you know, people are going to come before fish. That's, that's how we are. But, you know, fish seem like they're always at the bottom of the totem pole. It'd be nice to, to move them up. And, um, you know, after listening to John and Jeff's multiple points for why dam removal is the right move here, you know, I, I had a higher understanding of why this is such an important movement for our fisheries. Um, you know, I learned that the mill is, is not as much under threat of closure as I thought because, you know, you could have proper intake and outtake pipes that could be installed to keep things flowing smoothly for the mill. So if you listen to the episode, there's a little bit more on that so you can gain some more context. Um, you know, I'd never heard of that option. So while I really wanted the fish to win, I thought it's impossible, right, if you're going to be affecting jobs of, of thousands of people, as, as was reported in the news. Um, so, you know, some of it may be fear-mongering, some of it may be total truth, but, I mean, I, I didn't know about these options, right? So whatever... My point is whatever side you're on, you know, take a listen, educate yourself. It, you know, it may change your mind, it may not, but gaining as much understanding as possible will help you become a better advocate for our fisheries. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed learning about the ASF and what their hopes are for the futures of our uh, of our waters. All right, so I'm here with John Burroughs and Jeff Reardon of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Um, John, why don't you kick us off and kind of give us a little bit of your background in fisheries and talk about kind of your current role with ASF. Sure. Uh, so John Burroughs, I'm ASF's Executive Director for U.S. Operations. I've been with ASF for a little over 22 years now. 
Um, I've got a background in environmental policy, um, conservation work, with a kind of a focus on fisheries and coastal ecosystems. Um, did that back in grad school in the, in the 90s. Um, where, my, was, where was that? I went to the what was then called the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and is now the Yale School of the Environment. Cool. They kicked the forestry part out? Yeah, there's still a forestry school there, but they, they renamed it about a dozen years after I graduated. So wanted to focus on the environmental part, which really was the big focus of the school. Cool. And so for now, for you, for ASF, you know, I'm involved with pretty much all of anything we do here in the United States. So it's communications work, state and federal ad- advocacy work, um, permitting work, hydropower relicensing, communications. We have a big restoration program doing on-the-ground projects with dam removals and culvert replacements. Um, so have my hand in kind of all aspects of that. And then we've got a staff here of um, four people that work on U.S. programs and then um, someone else who works in development for ASF, both ASF US and ASF Canada. Cool. And I, I should say, you know, ASF is an international nonprofit organization. We're 75 years old this year. Uh, so nice. formed, founded back in 1948. Hence the hat here, right? Yeah, it's hence that beautiful hat with the logo that I think Peter designed, which is, which is excellent. Very good. We'll introduce Peter later. He's yeah. sitting in the shadows. And, and so, you know, ASF, we, we, we are the U.S. office here and do work primarily, almost exclusively in Maine at this point. But our headquarters is in New Brunswick, where we've got about two dozen staff. Then we've got staff in each of the provinces from Quebec, Labrador, Newfoundland, um, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick as well. So it's close to 40 people at this point in time working on Atlantic salmon issues in um, eastern North America. We also have, have a presence at the international level in Greenland and doing work in salmon management in the, all over the North Atlantic. So we do everything kind of the, the local level for small projects to state, provincial, federal advocacy to kind of the international negotiations and involvement in you know, working on salmon conservation, you know, all across the, the North Atlantic. Okay, great. Um, I have a couple of just questions just from you talking there. Some stuff of like the the stuff you say locally you're doing with like the culvert work and those things, but let's jump into Jeff real quick and then I'll, I'll come back to you. So, uh, Jeff Reardon, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, uh, Jeff Reardon, I'm a project manager with the Headwaters program here at ASF, working in Maine on, oh, dam removals, fishways, um, um, culverts. So, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, I've been with ASF a really short period of time. John's been here forever. Um, I worked for Trout Unlimited for a long time and yep. came over from TU to ASF just in November. So I've been here about six months. Um, similar work? Uh, pretty similar. I mean, I, I was with TU for over 20 years, so I did a, a bunch of different things for them. Uh, but I worked on hydroelectric dam relicensing uh, way back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Lots of dam removal work. Um, and then also a lot of work on brook trout. So cool. before I used to focus on brook trout and Atlantic salmon. Uh, now it's much more... Um, just Atlantic salmon. Awesome. Awesome. Um, just to jump back to you really quick. So you were talking about like culvert work, all that stuff. So I, I'm part of like Sebago's TU chapter and that's kind of some things we, we deal with too. But like at what, like, is there like a hierarchy? Like, do you guys jump in more to that stuff than like a little grassroots organization like TU? Because they have different branches and stuff like that. So. Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, back in the, in the late 1990s, the, the Atlantic Salmon Federation and our main council, we started to get involved a little bit with some small dam removals in the Penobscot watershed. It was kind of some staff and then some volunteer-driven. 
and then over the years we started to get more involved in those projects and so we went to you know a portion of a couple of us working on those projects was part of our job to now having two people that essentially work full-time on doing those projects around the state gotcha. and, and we've done you know it's over 50 projects in the last 20 years and you know dozens of culvert projects a bunch of small dam removals and then fishways at some lake and pond outlets um, and ideally you know dam removal is the best option where, where, where possible, where feasible, where it's acceptable. Um, but there are places where you can get the biological and ecological gains with fishways, which is be lake and pond outlets. Um, seeing, a, seeing a fishway in the middle of a free-flowing stream is uh, you know, far from ideal. We would love to see those, see those removed. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's really interesting. Just, you know, I think we all started as just fishermen, right? We love a place. You get passionate about going there. It turns into like a lifestyle for you but then you kind of are like all right there's things going on here how can I help and make this better you know that's kind of like why I jumped in with TU and I'm kind of trying to find my role with them like guys like you you know you guys deal with legal stuff you deal with like you know FERC and those things to me are not my wheelhouse you know so there's always like um you know I look I look at stuff that you guys do and I'm just like wow it's 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 crazy that you can start off as just like a fisherman and next thing you know you're working a job like you guys are doing and <laughs> like yeah. fighting town halls <laughs> and just weird different stuff well it's pretty cool you know a lot less fishing you know we're doing this stuff you get out and see a lot of places but you're doing a lot of work kind of you know for the for the fish for the river yeah um, a little bit less fishing but you know the, the major reason we focus on this stuff you know atlantic salmon and a lot of our other native fish species they're only able to access you know a fraction of their historic habitat so the federal agencies that are responsible for managing and restoring Atlantic salmon have done a pretty big analysis looking at dams and determined about a dozen years ago that salmon can only access about 10% of their historic habitat. Yeah. And that's just from dams. And when you look at all the road crossings out there that are barriers, you know, it was probably less than, f- less than 5% of the habitat. So all of this work, you know, is to get salmon and a whole bunch of other native sea-run fish back to the historic habitat. So we've got you know, historically low runs of salmon, but also you know, very low runs of river herring and shad and other species. And all of that restoration work in those small projects, plus the big dam removals on the larger rivers, has really, over the last couple of decades, brought back a massive amount of, of sea run fish species yeah. and gotten those fish back to you know, a good chunk of their historic, of their historic habitat. But salmon in particular are, you know, are still stuck going to maybe 10% of their habitat. A lot of their really high quality habitat in the, the mountains, you know, the upper Kennebec, western Kennebec, parts of the Penobscot and some of the Downeast rivers are still largely inaccessible to the species. Yeah, I, I gotta be honest too, up until like right around 2020, I had very, I didn't even really know that, like what you guys do. Like when they're salmon at the dam, you, tra- you try to transport them back up, right, to their headwaters so they can live there, spawn there, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing, the situation on the Kennebec. You know, ideally, you would have a situation where our rivers are more rebalanced, you know. Yeah. Some dams are gone. The dams that remain have the best fish passage possible, and the fish are swimming to those headwater streams on their own, right, right. on their own time frame. Um, the situation we have on the Kennebec, you know, we have one dam with fish passage. The salmon that find that fish way are then trucked beyond the other three dams or at least in the upper Sandy. And actually, for the time being, that's probably much better for those fish than, yeah. you know, trying to surpass, you know, 30 miles of river with dams. So you must have a window of when you know those fish are going to be there and like, how, like, 
do you have somebody like physically there observing and like waiting for those fish to come in? Do you have cameras? Like, yeah, so that? yeah, so what happens? Um, the the main Department of Marine Resources, which is the state agency responsible for all sea run fish and for Atlantic salmon, um, when a salmon enters the fishway, you know, in Waterville at the Lockwood Dam, someone from the power company Brookfield calls DMR staff, says you've got a salmon here. Those folks are on call. They go in the truck, put the salmon in. Hopefully, it's more than one salmon. Uh, it's an aerated, cool tank. They then drive it, you know, an hour or so up river yeah. to release a fish, and they're doing that from May through the summer and into the fall. The, the bulk of the of the salmon run is happening, you know, by early July. But there are fish that will come in in the middle of summer, and then um, some fish in the fall as well. So gotcha. whenever they come in, those folks need to. Make are they trip. fall spawners? If so Atlantic salmon will fall, will spawn in the fall. Usually, most of the spawning is in November. Um, in recent years or times, you know, some fish are spawning late November and in sure. December. But yeah, fall spawners. And so fish coming in in May, they're, they need to get up river when the water is still high and still cold. And they're going to hunker down for five or six months in cold water refugia, you know, as far up river as they can. Then they'll spawn in the fall yeah. and head back to the ocean. Um, the reason I kind of asked some of that is a few years ago, I got to go down to the Saco River. And they have a little station down there. And they're raising some Atlantic salmon in the, the, I don't know, the building, the structure they have there. And then what I learned is that they go up river in some of the tributaries and they will stock eggs in there. They'll even dump some of the fish in there, which is kind of really interesting to think about. But those fish aren't getting back up in Saco, I believe. Am I, am I correct about that? There's a, there are a few of the dams on the Saco have fishways. It's only the first two. Yeah. Um, so there is one tributary in particular where spawning has been documented, but that's a very small tributary. The bulk of the Atlantic salmon habitat in the Saco, you know, is actually in above five or six dams and in New Hampshire. So you've got to get to the big and little Ossipee before you get your you know, biggest chunk of habitat. And then gotcha. after that, it's up in the White Mountains, you know, North yeah. Conway. So what's their habitat? I mean, let's let's look. I, I think I understand their habitat, but if someone who doesn't, what's their habitat for spawning? Like, what do they need? Why are we so focused on getting all these dams removed to get where they need to go? Yes, Jeff, do you want to? Yeah, jump in? I'll, I'll jump in. Well, literally, it's everything from the ocean off Greenland to headwater streams at fifteen hundred feet elevation, well up tributaries to the Kennebec, the Penobscot, historically the Saco, um, and everything in between. So if if you look at you know the what, what, what do they need to survive? Juveniles are coming into the river. They're, uh, sorry, the adults are coming into the river, spawning in uh, November. Uh, eggs will be emerging from the gravel uh, well, probably what, three or four weeks from now, you know, mid, mid-May, uh, so a month from now. Um, and then typically spending two years in fresh water, although there's some variety there. Some of them will spend three years in fresh water. Um, some of them may only spend a year in fresh water. Depends how you know they how fast are they growing? How much food is there? How good is the water quality? Um, really good juvenile habitat is cold. It's high gradient, and it has relatively little competition from other species. So they they co-evolved living with brook trout. They didn't co-evolve to live with um, smallmouth bass, with brown trout, with rainbow trout. So the more competition they have, the, the harder life is for them. The warmer it is, the harder life is for them. Um, they can tolerate a little bit warmer water than brook trout can, but not much. Yeah. Um, they'll then, after about two years in fresh water, uh, migrate out into the ocean. 
And similar to, you know, different life history strategies in freshwater, out in the ocean, you'll see some fish that will spend just a year in the ocean yeah. and come back as what are called grills, typically almost all males. Um, historically, Maine saw relatively few grills. Uh, the Canadian rivers have always seen more. Maine saw mostly what they call two-sea winter salmon that have spent two years at sea, but there are also three-sea winter salmon. Yeah. And you'll get some fish that will be repeat spawners. Um, and I think kind of the... The, um, the hopeful example all of us look to in terms of restoration being possible is you've got this shoestring um, salmon restoration project that the main DMR has pulled together uh, to stock eggs in the Sandy River. Basically, everything except the spawning is happening as it would in nature. Um, so you guys, you guys are working closer with the DMR? Yep, so they've, they've got a cadre of volunteers, including a lot of folks from ASF and nice. TU and local landowners. Um, all, all kinds of folks that they literally started out raising salmon eggs in incubators. And then uh, Paul Christman, who I think is, is one of the geniuses of salmon restoration, uh, DMR biologist, Paul said, this is kind of silly. Why are we putting these things in refrigerators and then having to send somebody up there and dip them out into the river? What if we just planted eggs in the gravel? And he basically invented both a system and the, and the tools to make that happen. So they now have this backpack-mounted um, suction pump yep. that basically digs a red they put a funnel into the red pour the eggs into it wow. um, and it and, and they get incredibly high hatching rates it's, it's, it's a pretty remarkable program that program egg fish from that system have gone out to the ocean come back to spawn been trucked up around the four dams spawned in the sandy river mm. gone back to the ocean and come back as repeat spawners which do, is which is pretty remarkable do they have um, well I have two questions but I'll, I'll keep jumping on that for a second, but do they have numbers, um, are they able to track, like, how many of the eggs actually, like, hatch, and then they, how do, like, how are they getting out to the ocean? Are they spilling over the dams? Are they sneaking Right now, they're spilling through the, either they're spilling over or they're going through turbines, gotcha. some mix of that. Um, and in terms of counting, um, you know, you can't, you can't track every salmon from egg to the ocean. But what we do have now for monitoring is they have good numbers, and I wish I had them in front of me. Um, we can maybe find those for you on what their hatch rate is. Yeah. Um, and at least in the Sandy River, it's, it's really good because it's really high-quality habitat. Um, they then have summer monitoring that they'll do via electrofishing, just like you've probably seen with, with brook trout or sure. stock trout. Um, and so they know that the juveniles, you know, they've got egg, they know where the eggs are planted. They're then doing electrofishing all around and know that, A, a lot of the eggs that they've planted, the juveniles are moving pretty widely through the system. Like, they're finding them way away from where they've planted eggs. They're also finding um, juveniles in places that they know were resulting from reds because they'll come back in the fall and look in the river for natural reds that are dug and look for juveniles around those. And just the last couple of years, um, they've started monitoring the out-migrating smolts so a smolt is a fish. It spent two years in the in the in fresh water. It's got to change itself from being able to deal with fresh water to being able to deal with salt water. They call that smoltification. Mm -hmm. They're dropping out um, about the same time as spawners are coming in. So the fish may show up to spawn in in um, coming into the rivers in May and June. The smolts are dropping out in April and May. Um, and we've seen monitoring at the, on the lower sandy now. With if I'm remembering the numbers. 12 or 13,000 smolts were coming out of the Sandy River going to the ocean in, in one year and maybe 1,000 or, or 1,500 fish less than that the second year. So okay. we're, seeing, we're seeing that. 
And then the last piece of monitoring, we don't, we don't really know what's happening out in the ocean. It's a, it's a big ocean and there's, you know, all, all, you know, 1,500 fish or 15,000 fish out in the ocean are hard to find. Yeah. But when they're coming back in, we get the numbers that return to the fish weight lock. Where do you think they're going? Are they going north or south? Yeah, so all, so this, all of our salmon are, are heading north. You know, they're going out down around Nova Scotia and up. Um, and some actually are heading into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Some go to the east of, of Newfoundland, but a lot go to the west. And their first winter, they're in the Labrador Sea, you know, to the north of Newfoundland, okay. east of Labrador. Um, the gross will then come back here, but the ones that spend two winters in the ocean are going to Greenland. And so by their year, 15 months or so out in the ocean, they're off the west coast of Greenland feeding on capelin and other species, and that's where they're growing very rapidly. Gotcha. So they're there for a, a full season, eat gorging on fish, getting fat and getting energy reserves so they can swim all the way back. So it's after three years that they want to return back? It's generally well, average, no, typically two. Two, okay. Yeah, so they're going to leave, say the, the, a senior river fish is going to leave in May. Yeah. Uh, it'll typically would come back as an adult about two years later. Crazy. You know, it's, it's crazy. You think, look at the life, life history. Um, you know, fish that are being hatched, you know, way up high in little tributaries, you know, spending a few years there running the gauntlet of dams, going, going all the way to Greenland and back. You know, it's a pretty amazing... So many variables in the, in the mix there. Um, well, and, 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 and just, just to, to follow up on that, I, I think one of the things to think about with salmon, you know, we're, we're interested in restoring all the species that are native to these rivers. Yeah. On both what, the ocean. What are all those species? So for sea run fish, yeah. um, in the Kennebec, the Penobscot, the other big rivers in Maine, we would have Atlantic salmon, which are the fish, they, they well, take that back. They're the anadromous fish that go the farthest upriver. Gotcha. We'd have eels. Their, their life history is actually the opposite. They spawn in the ocean, and their juveniles come back to fresh water. And the eels still make it all the way into Moosehead Lake, past all the dams, all the way up to Kennebec. Wow. Over waterfalls that salmon did not pass over historically. I mean, the, the, the eels, I think, go even farther than the salmon do. Um, and then the, I'm trying to think of the, the full suite of others. So we'd have three species of herring. Yep. Alewife, which spawn in lakes and ponds, mm-hmm. and grow to, if you're a striper fisherman, you know alewives, bait fish. Um, blueback herring, which most people couldn't tell from an alewife. They're very, very, I, look very similar. The only difference is they spawn in river habitat. Yep. Um, and then a bigger herring, it's a pretty good game fish, called American shad. Um, I didn't know it was a type of herring. What's that? I didn't know those. Yeah, so th- th- those three are all very closely related cool. to each other, and they're also pretty closely related to the marine herring that aren't coming up the river. Um, and then on top of that, we'd have sea lampreys, um, rainbow smelts, tom cod, sea run brook trout. What am I missing, John? Striped bass. Striped bass. I can't forget striped bass. And two species of sturgeon. Yeah, Atlantic yeah. and short nose sturgeon. Both sea run browns. Not native. They're not native, right? They're, no, stocked. they're, they're European. They're stocked and they're here. Yeah. They're actually doing fairly well in recent years, but yeah, they're from a different continent. Yeah. Yeah. They, they seem to be making their way into the striper waters that I fish more and more. I see yeah, them a I, lot. I'm catching them you know, off the Mousam River in the yeah. ocean. Yeah. You know, when striper fishing, and they're pretty sizable. It's pretty crazy. Uh, Great Salt Bay. I've seen them running through my duck decoys in Great Salt Bay, nice. tailing <laughs> along, the side, along the edge of the salt marsh. I was pretty, I was pretty shocked. Oh. The, 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 the other thing I just wanted to add, um, for, from a, from a, the re, one of the reasons that salmon are so hard to restore is that their habitat, other than the eels, is the farthest upriver. They've got away. the farthest to go in freshwater. Yeah. So they need the whole corridor from Popham Beach 
to almost the Appalachian Trail, way up on the headwaters of the Sandy River. They've yep. got to make that. And then similarly on the ocean side, they're going farther in the ocean, uh, again, than anybody except the eels. I mean, the herring are kind of staying, you know, ranging back and forth, maybe to Cape Cod or North Carolina and the Gulf of Maine. Uh, but the salmon are using huge chunks of the ocean. And if you're traveling that long, you know, it's, I mean, think about the difference between a 300-mile car trip and a 3,000-mile yeah. car trip. There's just a lot more things to go wrong. And so if something does go wrong, it's a lot harder to recover from. But if sure. you're, I was yeah. going to ask a stupid question before. It's still a stupid question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, did the salmon have to go out to the ocean to, like, spawn? Like, can they just stay up, like, up in the tribs in the sandy and then spawn and then just keep making babies there? Well, that's what landlocks do. You know, landlocked salmon and Atlantic salmon, they're, they're the same species. Yes. At some point, millennia ago, um, you know, the landlocked salmon in four places in Maine decided to stay in their rivers. Gotcha. And say, hey, we don't need to go to the ocean. We're going to stay here and use the lakes and the rivers as our, as our habitat. Um, but, you know, historically, salmon from the beginning as, as a species went to the ocean and came back. Yeah. They're programmed to do that genetically. Um, there's advantages to go to the ocean. You can get a lot more feed. You can grow faster, bigger out there, come back and reproduce. That makes sense. Uh, there are also trade-offs, those long migrations that Jeff talked about, yeah. um, increased predation out in the ocean. Um, but they do it for, you know, for ecological, environmental, you know, different reasons. And it's something that they just evolved to do over time. Yeah. Well, I told you it was a dumb question. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the other question I have about it too, though, you guys have all this data, right? And you have all this, like, you understand the process of how the salmon, uh, you know, from egg to going back to spawn. You must get a lot of your data from Canada, right? Because that's where a lot of this is happening. Well, yeah. One of the things about Atlantic salmon is probably one of the most studied fish species in the world. Right. Um, there's but we haven't been able to do that in our time here in Maine. No. Right? So essentially, you know, we've got close to 3,000 Atlantic salmon rivers in the North Atlantic, about close to 700 in North America, the rest over in Europe. Yeah. And so we've got scientific studies, you know, literature going back centuries on salmon from Europe. And here in North America, and even today, in, you know, Scotland, England, Ireland, Norway, there's just a whole cadre of Atlantic salmon biologists, ecologists doing, doing studies. So there is no shortage of scientific literature on life history, ecology, you know, yeah. any aspect of Atlantic salmon, it's, it's probably been studied and is, is being studied currently. So we've got a lot of information about, you talked about, well, how may salmon, you know, survive, you know, from egg to par to adult. You know, there's been a lot of research on that in North America, sure. in Europe, and, you know, it varies tremendously, not just from river to river, but just from, you know, from year to year and site to site. You know, salmon might pick a bad place to have a red in 0% survive, you know, zero percent emergence. Some places in Maine, like in the Sandy River, they've had, I believe, as much as 70 or 80 percent emergence, which is very, very high you know, for Atlantic salmon. Typically, you would have across the scientific literature, maybe about 10 percent emergence, I think is about the norm. And from that, so that's a fry, you know, after they emerge as a fry. By the time you get to a par, you're then losing, you know, another 90 percent. So on average, you would go from A to small you know, about 99% mortality. Yeah. And then for those smolts, you've got about a half percent at sea survival rate currently. And so you've got very, very few fish coming back, which is why they're endangered. But even under the best of circumstances, Atlantic salmon would have barely replaced themselves. You know, the average female has about 6,800 eggs. Repeat spawning female will have a lot more, but um, 
very, very wow. few eggs compared to like an L-wife. A female L-wife will have 60,000 eggs. Wow. And that's one of the reasons why they can have huge losses and withstand that. Sure. And have populations grow versus with Atlantic salmon, if you've got unnatural mortality at dams or a fishery or anything else, you have major impacts on that population. So everything needs to go right just for the species to replace itself. Yeah. And when we've overfished, we've dammed, we've polluted our rivers historically, had a whole suite of different threats and issues that have caused the declines. It just makes it so much more difficult to rebuild because we've got to deal with dams, we've got to deal with other issues. Yeah. And with a species that, you know, you can't have those losses to get restoration back. You've got to really get get those fish to and from the habitat, different different habitats, as quickly as possible um, on their own time frame. And so when you, and today, you know, there are still lots of little issues, you know, with acid rain in places, with land use practices. There's a lot of different things impacting salmon, but for our salmon in Maine, you know, it's dams. Most that, of dams, That right. is the biggest freshwater threat is dams. How about, how about like in Canada? Are they facing dams in Canada or are they like... Like, how are their numbers? Like, what do they think about their numbers in Canada it at this point? all depends on where you go. Yeah. So the southern range, kind of like southern New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, uh, that's kind of like the inner and outer Bay of Fundy Rivers. Yeah. They're either... Is that like... I'm not really familiar. Is that like Miramichi? Like, that's really... Yeah, no, Miramichi goes, flows out to the, on the northeast side. So this would be like the St. John River historically, gotcha. and then a bunch of smaller rivers um, that flow into the Gulf of Maine. Gotcha. Um, those rivers are either extinct or, you know, on the verge of extinction. They're in really tough shape, just like Maine. Yeah. Um, parts of northern Nova Scotia are still relatively healthy. Um, northern and kind of eastern side of New Brunswick are, you know, Miramichi has a lot of issues going on, but it's still got a, a run of, you know, five digit or five figures of salmon coming back each year. The further north you go, the healthier the runs are. Yeah. So you've got a lot of very healthy rivers in, uh, well, starting with the Restigouche and then the Gaspé rivers, the lower north shore of Quebec, and then a lot of rivers in Labrador and Newfoundland. And those rivers don't have dams on them? Some, well, some do. Some do. Um, a, a lot of the rivers you know, aren't dammed where you have your healthiest runs, but you do have a lot of dams in some places. There's a few dams in Newfoundland in particular. Um, some of the rivers there you know, have some massive dams on them, but usually they have much fewer dams than our rivers. Um, but even there, if you've got a river system with multiple dams, the salmon aren't doing well. Yeah. Um, then you get up into, into Labrador where you've got, I don't know how many rivers there are, you know, hundreds. They're, they're only able to actually do study or do assessments on a small handful. I think it's two for all of Labrador. It's just so remote. It's so remote, so yeah. big. And those rivers, by and large, are, are, dam- are free of dams mm. and very free of any human impact for that matter. Here's, here's another question. So you got... We're pretty much at the southern tip of Atlantic salmon, right? In mean here. As Historically, they would have been south as far as the Connecticut River. Sure, sure. Historically, but as of now, right? So at some point, if there's no Atlantic salmon left in Maine coming back, right? I guess my question is, the fish that are born here, will they, could they like adapt and move north and then spawn somewhere in Canada? Yes. So, what, so what would happen, you know, is we are seeing salmon populations like in Labrador, beginning to colonize new rivers for the to the north that okay. for whatever reason did they weren't in before no and so and we're going to see that too in Greenland as the glaciers disappear and more rivers come out we're going to have more populations there and then 
in the Arctic Circle. And we're going to see more of that. And it's, you know, fish from nearby rivers are going to colonize those rivers and do well. But if we lose our fish in Maine, they're, they're going to just go away. Yeah. They, they're not going to migrate and move into the Bay of Fundy rivers. They're just going to become extinct in the U.S. Gotcha. Um, and to go back to Maine a little bit, I think most people, like, in general, are, are pretty... They're pretty in tune with like the history of Atlantic salmon and like the Kennebec, right? Like, they were up in the Sandy River that you could fish from in Farmington before the Industrial Revolution days, right? Um, but what about other rivers? I mean, like the Penobscot. Like, what's what's like the history of them on the Penobscot? I'm so familiar with just like the Kennebec, right? Like, yeah. Well, let's say, I mean, the Penobscot's got a huge history for Atlantic salmon fishing, and you know, historically, the, the Kennebec and Penobscot kind of rivaled each other in terms of run size. Mm. You know, the best historical records and commercial fish catches would show that each river had at least 100,000 adults. Some estimates have been 150,000, you know, so it's a pretty large number of Atlantic salmon. And, you know, like, like the Kennebec, the salmon in the Penobscot would have gone you know, all the way up the east and west branch, you know, to Impossible Falls, cool, um, up to the Skatequis, Matawamkeg, all those places, you know, very far ranging in those, in the Penobscot River. And the history in the Penobscot for Atlantic salmon angling is huge. Um, the Penobscot Salmon Club was first formed around the early 1870s or so, maybe 1880. Um, first salmon club in North America, still exists today, 150 years later. Yeah, I've seen some stuff on social media about them. It's it's dwindled, obviously, but yeah, they, they're still just still, they still have a good sized membership, and there's two other salmon clubs in the Bangor area that you know, still have members, and you know they were fishing the Penobscot until the late 1990s. Um, but yeah, a huge history of you know Atlantic salmon fishing on the Penobscot in the Downeast Rivers, Machias, Narraguegas, the Denny's River. They all had salmon fisheries, you know, into the early 1990s. And there's just a... Sheepscot. Sheepscot. Sheepscot yeah. Salmon Club was one of the last that was going. Yeah. One of the things I kicked myself about is when I was, when I was growing up, I'm, I'm 55, so I went, I went to high school in the 80s. Back when there was salmon fishing all over Maine, my, my dad didn't salmon fish. We just trout fished. And I'm still kicking myself. Yeah. By the time I got back in the mid-90s, the runs were in such shape that although it was still legal to fish for them, I, I didn't feel okay doing it. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, been, I, I've been working on salmon conservation for almost 25 years, and I have never angled for Atlantic salmon. Crazy. So What's, what's cool, Aaron, if you think about historically, like on the Kennebec, you know, the entire Sandy was accessible, but you know, fish were going up the main stem. I mean, over Kiratunk Falls... They're going to, above. To just below Moosehead, about where Indian Pond Dam is. There's yeah. an impassable falls that Indian Pond Dam flooded out, and up the dead to Grand Falls and wow. all the tributaries of the dead. Wow! So if you're if you fish like the, Spencer Stream, like all of that way, Spencer Stream, Salmon Stream. Yeah, that's why it's Salmon Stream, yeah. right? Just look, look look on the map at all the salmon streams in Maine. That's where salmon got to historically. And so if you're fishing, you know below Williams, below Wyman, or the Forks for landlocks or, or trout up there. Just imagine a 10 or 12 pound Atlantic salmon being up there in yeah. the thousands, yes. historically, yeah. tens of thousands. Yeah. So it would have just been phenomenal, you know, several centuries ago to, to see that. And some of the records, you know, indicate that, you know, not many fish, well, a small segment of the fish were able to get above Caratunk. Gotcha. You know, there, massive falls, but those fish would have been huge fish, super strong, big fish to get past those falls. So you would likely would have had a lot of fish in the 12, 15, 20 pound range, making it that far up, up there. Crazy. Crazy. Um, 
Um, for the Penobscot, are they doing like what you guys and DMR are doing on the Kennebec and transporting fish up somewhere? Are they planting eggs and some trips somewhere? So, it, well, go ahead, Jeff. Two, I think there's two, two, thing, two things that are different. Um, one is, um, mo- at least, at least in, within our, with our lifetimes, um, all the dams on the Penobscot in the 20th century had some kind of fishways. They weren't necessarily very effective, but the Penobscot... You know, the, the salmon were never extinct on the Penobscot. There was an active, you know, the angling clubs were working on restoration and they were keeping the pressure on the dam owners. So there were always fishways and there was a series of fights on the Penobscot through the 20th century about potentially building new dams. There was yeah. talk about rebuilding the Bangor Dam. There was talk about building um, another dam between VZ and Great Works. Um, the Basin Mills Dam, that was a huge fight in the 80s and into the 90s when I came back into the state. Um, but there was always salmon fish and there was always some kind of fish passage. We're on the Kennebec, pretty much after 1837 when Edwards was done. Edwards had a fishway for a year or two and then a flood took it out. And after that, there was never any fish passage. So there were a handful of fish hanging on, you know, Augusta's tidal. There were a handful of fish hanging on in tributaries downstream of Augusta, but it was just never known as a salmon. So there's a very different feel. The other big difference is um, the restoration strategy. The Penobscot has always been primarily a restoration strategy based on stocking smolts. And I, we saw the numbers on a, on a call yesterday, I can't remember them. But the, the vast majority of what's put in for restoration purposes on the Penobscot is stock smolts, which they're, you know, they're growing them up in the hatchery to the point where they're ready to go to sea, yeah. and then putting them in the main stem of the river letting them go to sea and hoping they come and back. putting them in the main stem to basically be like, this is where you're from. Right? Yeah, this is where you need to come back to. And, and as a strategy to minimize the number of dams they have to pass over because they're going to be lost in every dam. So, and so the, you know, kind of that, that's been one approach to restoration. I think the Kennebec is the far extreme. Virtually everything in the Kennebec, with the exception of a couple of years recently, they've put in some, some smolts. Um, has been egg-based. So it's a, just yeah. a very very different restaurant. And then there's some things in between. I mean, there have been people stocking par. The Downey Salmon Federation has a, has a program where they're growing up par. Uh, with the, and the idea, the idea with the egg strategy or stocking fry or stocking par is the sooner we get them into the habitat, the more likely they are to imprint on it. Okay. The more natural, you know, the difference between a fish that spent, you know, two months in the hatchery two years in the hatchery or its whole life in the hatchery is, is big, just, you know, in terms of its fitness to deal with the wild. And so there's this variety of techniques. The reality is now the combination of, of difficult conditions in freshwater and lower ocean survival yeah. um, is that you, 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 can, you can argue about which of those is, is more successful, um, but they're all they're they're all having challenges because a we've got habitat that's been pretty pretty impacted and b we're dealing with low at sea survival so okay. you can you can put out a lot more smolts if you grow them to be smolts because you lose all that mortality John was talking about you know there there aren't cormorants picking off the the fry and par in your hatchery there aren't mergansers feeding on them and otters um, but then what you're putting into the river is a whole lot less likely to come back and act like a wild fish and spawn successfully when it gets here. Okay. The advantage of the egg stocking program is those fish come back and are essentially counted as wild fish. And from what we see them doing in the sandy, they're, they're going through all the motions and doing so successfully. Much lower rate of that, but, but probably a higher rate of return from the small stock fish. Interesting. So you're seeing like 
you're seeing better re- you're not seeing bigger number of returns on the Kennebec than the Penobscot, right? But you're seeing like a better story, right? It's yeah, like I mean, so the Penobscot still gets seventy five to eighty percent of all adults returning to the US, you know, are going back to the Penobscot. Okay. You know, either the Kennebec or some years the Narraguegas down east is is number two. Um, but what you are seeing is roughly ninety percent of the adults coming back to the Penobscot are from those smolts. Gotcha. And 500 plus of them are going to the hatchery to perpetuate the cycle, which is really the program there is to prevent extinction, keep genetic diversity, prevent extinction. Um, you still allow other fish to go spawn and reproduce on their own, but it's being driven by that, by that small. So they don't take everyone, but they'll take like, you said like they, They've got a target. It's 530, 540. Okay. So some years you might have a few hundred fish going to spawn in the wild or a few thousand. Yeah. And Penobscot's a big watershed. So even if you have 2,000 fish in the wild, they're going to vastly different corners and you have still pretty pretty low numbers. Yeah. Versus on the Kennebec, until they started doing some smolt stocking a couple of years ago, for a number of years, every single adult coming back was either from the egg planting, which is the closest you can get to wild, or was wild from natural spawning. And so you've got, and so even though you had much fewer fish, the smolts that were produced from that, from being in the river for two or three years, they were just so much more fit. And despite the gauntlet of dams they had to go through, they were retur- they return at much higher rates than the fish stopped the smolts. And we've seen that in other rivers as well. A wild smolt's gonna come back at about four to seven times the rate as a hatchery smolt. Gotcha. So you might get a lot more numbers on the Penobscot, which you do, but your percentage of wild or naturally reared fish is gonna be much higher there is much higher in a place like the Kennebec. Yeah. What, what's the, um, I'm really not very, um, I'm not really familiar with the lower Penobscot. I'm like a big West Branch guy. I've been going up there for a long time and fishing for land logs and brook trout. But um, what's the history of the dam removal on the Penobscot? I, and it was like the VZ Dam. Was that the first one that fish would encounter coming up from the ocean? Yeah, I'm going to let Jeff cover this. He was pretty involved in the Penobscot River Restoration Project. What you guess? Well, so if you go back far enough, like when I, when I was a kid, when I was in high school in the 1980s, people were fighting over rebuilding the Bangor Dam, which had breached in a flood in the 1970s, I think, maybe even earlier than that. And they were talking about building a new dam, the Basin Mills Dam, which would have been the second dam on the river. But the first dam on the river, at least for the you know late 20th century, was the Vesey Dam, which, like um, like Edwards Dam when it was on the Kennebec, was right at the head of tide, and it's tidal right to the base of the dam. Yeah. So the dam sat there at the top of the, the head of tide. There were a handful of tributaries lower down. Cove Brook is probably the most famous one that supported it. You know, there were a few wild fish going in and out of Cove Brook. Um, also, a pretty interesting sea run brook trout fishery, uh, cool. which which is still there. Yep. Um, ditto on the duck trap, which is going into Penobscot Bay, but not into the river. But then you had the Vesey Dam. Just above that, you had a fight over whether or not to build Basin Mills Dam, which was defeated. Yep. Um, then you had the Great Works Dam, yes, which was an old town. So Vesey Dam in Vesey in Eddington, uh, Great Works Dam in um, in Old Town and Milford on the far side. Another mile, mile and a half above that is the Milford Dam, which is still there. Yes. And then about 20 miles above that is the West Enfield Dam. Okay. And then there are others above that. So those those dams all always had fishways. Um, they were pretty poor fishways. Yeah. It's pretty well documented how poor they were. 
And I want to talk about that in a second. But my question is: Was the Great Works Dam removed before the BZ Dam? Yes. yes. So when so oh, when the, so we had we had this big settle <laughs> we had a big settlement agreement, um, to, and 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 to basically there were a whole bunch of things that people were still fighting about, including whether or not to build the Basin Mills Dam, mm. whether to do upgrades at other dams, what kind of fishway was going to go on the BZ Dam. The dams changed hands. There was a new owner, and the new owner and our organization and lots of other organizations and the state and the feds basically said, we think there's a better solution here than beating ourselves up over this forever. And so they came up with a settlement agreement that called for the VZ Dam to be removed, the Great Works Dam to be removed, and there'd been a proposal that talked about maybe removing the Howland Dam. Mm. Uh, it didn't get removed. We can talk about why later on if we want, but we built a bypass channel around Howland. Yeah, and that, that's and, the one I've been... Okay, so we, we, let's, let's come back and talk about Howland separately, but yeah. to go back to your question, VZ got removed second, I think, for two reasons. One is that um, because the um, because VZ Dam was the first dam on the river, the first fishway on the river, it was the location from which the broodstock that support the hatchery effort that provides returning salmon happens. So if we did VZ first, we weren't going to build a new fishway at the Great Works Dam, right. which was not a good. I mean, not that VZ was great, yeah. but Great Works was terrible. And these are both so owned we're, by we're, the same person, though. They were owned by the same company. Yeah. So, pri- uh, like private, were they doing hydroelectric? They were. They were hydroelectric dams. Actually, Great Works was originally built to power a mill that was associated with it, the okay. Old Town Fuel and Fiber Mill. Um, but the mill had sold the power. And eventually had the same owner as VZ below it and Milford above it. Yeah. So what had to happen before VZ could go away is that the new fish lift had to be built at Milford. Mm. And what that meant is while they were building the new fish lift at Milford, so it would be ready once VZ was gone, we took out Great Works. Also had there was I mean there were some construction reasons for doing that too. I mean VZ impoundment it kind of was a sediment control for whatever construction impact you get. But the big thing was about keeping the restoration program going with the ability to trap fish at VZ. And then basically come in the next summer, start construction after most of this year's fish had showed up at VZ. Yeah. So keep that fishway running in May and June and early July. And then once the river got hot, send, send the contractors to work on getting VZ out of the way. So any fish that showed up in the fall could make it up to the new fish lift at Milford because Great Works was already gone. Okay. Um, it was kind of this like just-in-time sequencing to do both of those. And then the bypass channel at Howland was built a couple of years later. Um, I'm just writing some thoughts here, Dan. But if ideally, how many more dams would you need to remove on the Penobscot to get the uh, Atlantic salmon and other fish, right, to get up there to be able to do their thing? Oh. The, the project they opened up a lot of habitat. I mean, all the historic habitat for striped bass, sturgeon, a bunch of the species Jeff talked about before has been restored. Um, as part of that agreement, we were going to get you know the best fishways at the remaining dams possible. Milford did get a new fish lift. It's worked okay. Yeah. Um, the other dams upriver, the West End Field Dam, is the next dam on the main stem. That's in relicensing. Big question about fish passage improvements there. Um, it needs to be improved dramatically, not just for salmon, but for the river herring species. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, as part of the Penobscot Agreement, we were trying to rebalance. We got the, probably the most detrimental dams removed, and there's other things in place to try to minimize impacts. And I think we're still trying to hope that we can get meaningful restoration of all the species 
with what's left, but you know, it's certainly possible that another dam may come out someday. But at this point, you know, it's getting the best fishways there because we've yeah. gotten so much habitat reopened um, for all the different species. The, the, the other thing to think about on the Penobscot, and this is going to be true hopefully someday on the Kennebec too, is what what the benefits are depending on where in the river you were. Mm. So if you think about, I mean, again, it's not it's not like there's just the Penobscot River, right? Sure. There's the Penobscot, and then you get up over Milford Dam, and you go another 15, 20 miles up river. Hook it's, a like left. A lake, it's like a lake up there. Yeah, I mean, that's but, not a river. But, but, it's but you, so you, wide. It, but, but the first major tributary that comes in is the Piscataquis. Okay. And there's a bypass channel. And I think based on the monitoring that's been done at the bypass, um, although... Um, would have been would have been nice to have that dam removed too. Like it was the village green in the town of Howland, like, mm-hmm. and we needed their permission to do what was going to happen there. So yeah. we built the bypass instead, and that seems to be functioning as well as a removed dam would. Still got the impoundment, but fish are moving through that. All, and in fact, all the species of fish are moving through it. And then from there, in part because of work that ASF did back in the '90s, there are no dams up the Piscataquis, and there are no dams in the Pleasant River all the way to the headwaters of the east and west branch and middle branch of the Pleasant. So that stuff is now all a single dam from the ocean. Gotcha. If you stay in the Piscataquis, you then come to two dams in the town of Dover-Foxcroft, um, one of which is currently under consultation for, for fish passage, mm. the other of which is one that we're working on now, hopefully, I think, for a nature-like fishway or fishway or... So we pl- don't know yet. The Pleasant and the Piscataquis. So, 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 so the Pleasant is now one dam from the ocean. The gotcha. Upper Piscataquis is now three dams, right? They got to go through Milford. Yeah. Then they got to pass the two dams at Dover, and very few of them are passing the two dams at Dover now. Some do, but not a lot. Then the fish that are staying in the Penobscot, right? They didn't go up the first tributary. They've got to go up past Enfield, um, and then above Enfield, you've got mm-hmm. the Matawamkeg River coming in. So the Matawamkeg system is now. Two dams from the ocean. Who who benefits from the Piscataquis and the Pleasant being open? Is that Atlantic salmon or is that other? All, is that other? So all the, the so the sturgeon and the striped bass would have only gone to Old Town, so they got back a hundred percent of their historic habitat. Gotcha. Um, Why is that? Because the waters the waters because there was because the Milf, the Milford Dam is built at a natural falls. Gotcha. So it was, it was a falls that would stop striped bass I and see. would stop the two species of sturgeon and it would stop rainbow smelts, but yeah. everything else could get over it. Gotcha. Um, so, shad, alewives, I mean, really, really cool story as far as I'm concerned, um, where I spent a fair amount of time trout fishing uh, for a pretty good chunk of my trout fishing career um, up on the upper Pleasant River where the Appalachian Mountain Club has their 100-mile wilderness and their sporting camps. Um, there are now alewives going back to Silver Lake, which is a thousand, almost 1,000 feet of elevation. Okay. Um, and you go another... You know, 200 feet higher and 20 miles farther into the woods, and you're in prime native brook trout country. Does so we've got we've got alewives back to that, and, and salmon back to above that in the west branch and the middle branch of the Pleasant. Do the alewives affect the the brook trout population? I don't. I don't think so. They don't really have. Yeah, any, not, there's, not no, there's no reason to think that they would. They're not, not eating the brook. I mean, the alewives are the alewives are coming in. They spawn early in the lakes. They're spawning in May and early June, mm. and the juveniles are dropping out by midsummer. Like they're, okay. they, they're they're only here when it's warm and there's a lot of food, and then they're headed back to the ocean almost immediately. Yeah. Very different biology than the salmon have. Gotcha. The, uh, sa- the salmon are here for a while. And there probably is some competition between salmon and brook trout. Yeah, they, they're in pretty similar, and the alewives are only in lakes. Um, so less, I mean, Silver Lake, 
don't know if you know Silver Lake. I don't know. Uh, I've heard of it, though. I, I doubt Silver Lake ever had a very good trout fishery, just because mm. it's warm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, got a lot of, it's got a lot of pickerel. It surprisingly does not have smallmouth bass yet, but I'm huh. still wondering why not. Interesting. Yeah, usually there's pickerel, there's bass yeah. most of the time. Um, what I want to ask you guys both about is um, trying to understand. So if a dam doesn't come down, you can have a fishway, right? And trying to understand the different types of fishways. Um, I've seen a whole bunch of different ones. Some of them look like something that, you know, with a few beers, I could maybe rig it up. Um, and <laughs> some of them seem a lot more elaborate. Um to speak on a few that I've seen. So like I live in Saco, so down in Saco where the bridge goes over to Biddeford. I don't know if that's, that's not Mean Street on Water Street or what, I don't know what it is. But there's, they've rebuilt a uh, kind of fishway there out of like natural rock, right? It's kind of like a staircase. Yeah. But before that, they had these buckets that were like on a rope and they were just spinning and it was like the fish would land in the bucket and it was like an elevator to come up above the dam and then like dump them over. I just don't, like to me, I'm like, did a five-year-old think of that? You know, it's like, <laughs> like what are the chances of a fish landing in there and getting up there? You know? yeah, I don't remember the, the bucket thing, you know, but. Like, it's still there. It's not working. It's just there. Well, I think it's a thing, you know, typically, you know, historically you'd build fish ladders. There's different types of fish ladders, but. Yeah. You know, that's what you would have had through, you know, early on and throughout most of the 20th century. And then. They started building fish lifts or fish elevators, particularly on medium to larger rivers on the main stems. Because you're dealing with needing to pass a whole lot of fish of a whole lot of different species, so you need capacity. And so that's what you have at Milford. Um, that's what you know we'll, we'll probably have you know with other rivers or other other dams on the Penobscot. Yeah, it's what they're gonna you know potentially build at some of the dams on the Kennebec. And so you're dealing with just with volume of fish, and they've worked from anywhere from okay to or poor to okay <laughs> yeah um there, there are a few places like on the sebastocook the benton falls dam that seems to work great for elwives they're passing three million elwives there um but it's not, not may not be great for other species right it's yeah, like so it's just like what it, good for one, well, so one, one of the things okay. is you know i guess you could take like milford dam on the Penobscot as a good example yeah um there's about three million river herring you know elwives and bluebacks being passed through each year that's a pretty good number particularly a dozen years after dam removal, you know, they're getting shad in the low thousands to close to 10,000 in, in salmon. But thing is, salmon aren't passing there quickly enough. There's delays. Um, there's so much fish. You know, it's a 900-foot wide dam. The fishways on the corner on the eastern side, fish are finding it, but you get all these fish coming in around the same time. You get crowding, you get issues with, with delays, and you've got attraction flow while the water is up to the middle section of the dam, the western side of the dam. Yeah. And so to get... Will someone just leave then? Like if it's too crowded, they just so like turn around and draw some Yeah, else. it depends on the species. But essentially, the window for spawning for each species is different. And so you might have river herring or shad coming up who are going to spawn in June. Mm. If they can't get to the spawning habitat, they're going to go downstream and spawn in less than desirable or less than optimal habitat or yeah. not spawn at all. Salmon, who want to go much or need to go much further up and a lot of them have either come from above through stocking or you know you know through different different stocking different stages they're going to spend a whole lot of time trying to find that fish way swimming back and forth yeah back and forth. they're more interested in some ways and 
you know, that might be okay for a day or two in May when the water's cold. Yeah. If they're spending a week or two weeks in July swimming below mm-hmm. Milford Dam or the Lockwood Dam on the Kennebec, they're going to be stressed. They're going to lose a lot of energy reserves. Yeah. Um, That's what happens on the Saco, I believe. They have a hard time finding their way up whatever the lowest dam is there in town. Cataract. Yeah, they have a hard time finding it. I guess, from my understanding, there's like a ton of outflow kind of where they're supposed to get up and it like can block them or just they have a hard time finding it. Is well, and, and those, I mean, John mentioned this too, those those, those attractions, so there's, 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 there's a bunch of problems with fishways. One is how do you get fish to find it? Yeah. Right, because they evolve for an open river. An open river doesn't have just one place you can move. Right. 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 It's, hey, when the flows are up high, I'm up there swimming in the trees. And how wide is the fishway? Is it like four feet, maybe? Like, I think the fishway entrances are probably smaller than the room we're sitting in, okay. which is, what, 25 feet long, maybe? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the dam is 900, 1,000. We got it Lockwood. What's Lockwood? If you count all the dam and all the spillway, half a mile long. <laughs> It's crazy, and and there's often water coming out of it at different places. So here's the water's coming out of the turbine over here, and you got water spilling on the other side. At least when the water's high, because you can't run all the water through the turbines. You don't you don't you don't design for the spring flood. You design for average flow, Um, and the hydraulics are different. And different species are looking for different kinds of flow to move in. So they have Mm. different ability to jump. Right, salmon are pretty good jumpers. Shad, alewives, not really. Alewives are really good scramblers. Like an alewife will scramble up over a ledge, but it's not going to jump 10 feet in the air like a salmon can. Sure. Um, and you're trying to build one fishway that's going to work across the full range of flows yeah. from alewives that will start showing up in late April yeah. to um, Atlantic salmon that may be migrating in October, right? Mm-hmm. That fish hung out in the ocean, didn't want to come into freshwater. Ooh. Here it comes, September, October, I'm boogieing upstream, and they're coming up, you know, in a dry fall with almost no water in the river. It's just making anything work under that range of huge range of flows, and every fishway is mechanical, and so it's subject to mechanical failures, right? Doesn't doesn't work because the electricity's off, doesn't work because a valve fails, doesn't work because a hinge breaks, um, doesn't work because somebody's hung over and doesn't show up for work. I mean, it's just... There's all those inefficiencies built into any kind of an engineered solution that you don't have if you create, you know, an open river, multiple paths, the shad are swimming. I mean, you know, you know if, you're, if you fish for multiple species, the habitat you find the shad swimming in is not the habitat where you find the salmon swimming often. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they might only be 25 yards apart, but they're looking for different things. And very hard to provide that in a fish way. So you have this variety of... Um, I, I like to say one of the things we've learned with 200 years of building fishways is how many things don't work. Yeah. Um, and even the best ones don't work very well. Yeah. You know, they're still, it's still a, it's, it's a poor substitute for um, an open river that fish can move through quickly. Even short delays, especially at multiple dams, I mean, you know, you think 36 hours of delay, is that a big deal? 48 hours of delay. Well, there's only one dam in the system, maybe not. But if you've got to pass four dams before you get to the first tributary you can spawn in, that's a whole lot different because then it's two days here and two days there and two days there. And if you showed up at the first of June, you know, difference between water temperatures June 1 and water temperatures June 20th in the lower Kennebec or the lower Penobscot is huge. Yeah. That might be 10 degrees warmer water. 
a lot of the fishways that I've seen are, are on smaller, like I've never seen the one up in Waterville. I've never seen the one on the Penobscot. I'm just used to seeing them on smaller rivers. So like in Westbrook, they have Sacarapa Falls. They just built one there. The Alwives are doing pretty well there from what I understand in the spring. Um, that looks like a staircase, right? It's probably like 50 yards long, 60 yards long. It's kind of a little staircase going yeah. up. If I, if I remember right there, I think there's, there's there's a fishway on one side of the river and there's a nature-like fishway on the other. Yes. So you're giving fish two different ways to pass and yeah. maybe one of them works better high flows. And, and, I mean, that's more like what Mother Nature would do. High yeah. flows, they're over here. Low flows, they can still pass on the other side. That kind of thing. So ideally, if the dams need to stay... What's the what's the best road? The like the detour route you were talking about earlier. I apologize, I forgot what you called that. That's up Na- to me. Well, na- nature like fishway. Well, what was the one where you said it diverts around the dam? The Highland Bypass. Oh, the bypass channel. The bypass channel. Okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah. The, the the problem though is that in order to make the Highland Bypass channel work as well as it did, mm. um, the goal is except when the rivers in really like spring runoff. This is not true, but for most of the season. Our goal there is to put 100% of the water into the bypass and make the bypass look and feel and function like a natural river. Like it may dry Which up. If, and if you're making your money generating hydropower, putting you know 50% of the water down the bypass channel all the time and 75% or more all year long doesn't work for it. I mean, you can yeah. generate in the winter. And we're not, you know, November to, I guess they get November to May or November to April for the generating yeah. season. But it really wasn't compatible. I mean... That kind of an approach is not compatible with continuing to generate hydropower. Yeah, I mean, is there is there a way to negotiate with the hydropower companies and say, hey, during these two months, like, can we divert water here more to well, get the fish to come up? I mean, is you that can try. <laughs> ultimately, what what they do is dict- often dict- will be dictated by negotiating with the federal agencies who have the ability to do that under the Endangered Species Act or the Federal Power Act. Yeah. And then FERC makes ultimate decisions a lot of the time on as part of the federal part of the license. Yeah. And so yeah, in certain times you can negotiate things and get good compromises, but you know, we typically that's not what happens and the resources on the losing end. Gotcha. And that's what we're seeing on on the Kennebec. You yeah. know, if, if we don't see dams removed from the Kennebec, at least multiple dams, then you're not going to see meaningful fish restoration above above Waterville. Yeah. Not just for salmon, but for shad and for the river herring species. You couldn't build those bypasses there for two reasons. One, it's going to hurt the whatever hydroelectric generation those dams have, right? Yeah. And and, and well, essentially, in some of those places, like, you, there's, you can't build anything at the Lockwood Dam. You're yeah. in, a, in a parking lot <laughs> yeah. with a halfway mill. Yeah. Um, fully developed on both shores. Yeah. Gotcha. So you just don't have the land to, do, to dig up. And, and honestly, Leo, if, you, if there was land to do that, you're, you would be spending an order of magnitude more on something like that for a dam that generates almost such so little power. Lockwood is not a huge power generator at all. Yeah. Like, our dam removal there will cost you a fraction of what it costs for a nature-like fishway or multiple fish lifts and a fish ladder, you know, it's such a complex dam. You have, you need to have, you know, two, if not three, you know, fish passage systems there. And one, the one thing is really important to, to mention is, you know, you've got fishways and, you know, they can work sometimes, but the problem is you are, are not dealing with the unnatural impoundment behind the dam. Yeah. And so whether it's the Penobscot or the Kennebec or smaller rivers, all these species we're talking about evolved to move, migrate up, and spend part of their lives in free-flowing rivers. The Kennebec has a series of impoundments that are 
total of about 27 miles all together that warm up. There's very little flow mm-hmm. through them. You've got invasive species in yeah. there, bass, they'll, they'll feed on the fish. That you just cannot compensate or deal with that through fishways. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe eight, one dam with a couple of fishways and a small impoundment, maybe you can have meaningful restoration there for salmon and shad. But multiple dams, it's just it's never been done. And you yeah. just can't do it because biologically, ecologically, it's a completely different system when you've got a series of gauntlet of dams and impoundments than a free-flowing river. Yeah. So, so, so John, John gave you the, the it's, there's 27 miles of impoundment. Yeah. That's in 32 miles of river. So wow. fish comes into Lockwood, successfully makes it up the fishway. Assume there's fishways at all the other dams, which according to the plan now, maybe someday there will be. Of the right 32 now, miles right from now, there to left. the first river they can spawn in, um, how, you know, instead of swimming up 32 miles of river with a few pools in it, mm-hmm. they're swimming up 27 miles of impoundments with you know, the water slower, it's warmer, it's got more bass in it, it's better bass habitat, it's poorer, poorer native fish habitat. It's just, it's, uh, you know, it's not what they evolved to live in. Yeah. And um, again, those fish to get in early, while it's still cold, maybe boogie up through, and despite the delays, they get up into the sandy by early June. But you know, all, all those fish that are delayed, it's 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 a different story. I think you you know you talked about you know isn't there some solution that works for everything? And I, I mean, I think in some ways, at these dams, it's almost like you know it'd be nice if we could have our cake and eat it too. Yeah. Um, but I think the trade-offs are not going to come at the individual dam level. Mm. The way that those trade-offs can work, though, is, again, we did this on the Penobscot. You look at the trade-offs between low in the river, a set of dams that have extremely high impacts on sea-run fish and generate relatively little power. Yeah, Those are good candidates for removal. Yeah, And in that case, on the Penobscot, what we found was actually a way to um, literally move turbines from the dams that were removed to dams that remained in the system yeah. and come up with a slight net increase in power generation, but taking at least the, you know, the, the best case scenario, those fish that now have only one dam to get to, to get up into the Pleasant River and all that great habitat up yeah. there, they used to have to pass three. And that, that's, a, that's a huge benefit. And the other huge benefit you get is all those fish that never went above Old Town mm-hmm. got 100% of their habitat back. And, and that was done with, with no loss of energy. Now, the dams on the Kennebec are a little bit bigger. Um, I think zero loss is going to require some more creative thinking. But I do think, you know, you look relatively, those dams low in the river have really large impacts on sea-run fish mm-hmm. and much lower generation than the dams high in the river. I mean, the Indian Pond Dam is a 72, 74 megawatt project. The Wyman Dam, I think, is an 83 megawatt project. Yeah. Yep. Lockwood's a six megawatt project. Right. And it's just like there's, a, ton, like there's a huge right. amount of energy upriver yeah. with relatively low. I mean, no sea run fit. Well, not no, but we're, we're, we're not in our lifetimes and probably any of our children's lifetimes seeing think people think about restoration of sea run fish back into the Dead River back into the Kennebec above one. Moose, moose and all that. Moose, you know. But you can reopen the lower river, um, and there may be some other opportunities to get creative. I mean, the Kennebec's a big system with a lot of hydropower projects. Yeah. Right? There may be some mechanisms to, you know, help help make that happen. There may be some trade-offs between... Uh, there's a really interesting analysis um, that was done by, by a fisheries biologist who... He, the question he asked was, okay, let's say 
I wanted to remove these dams, how many acres of hydro of, of solar power would I need to replace the energy from these four dams? Yeah. And the amount of the amount of acreage you need is less than the size of the four impoundments combined. Sure. So there, you know, you could even conceive of like turning some of those impoundments into fields full of solar panels to replace some of the energy. Mm. There's there's yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of ways to do that, but it's not you're going to need land on the side of the river. Yeah. That probably isn't where I would choose to put them. I'd rather sure. see a riparian buffer. Sure. Um, but, you know, we're in Maine. There's a lot of land. Yes. And there's, there's a lot of bad sites for solar power, but there's a lot of good sites for solar power here, too. Um, I want to add that. I want to add that question. But I, I want to take a break here in a couple of minutes. And that sounds good. After a break, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Kennebec dams. I also want to talk about, like, what happens to the river when you remove a dam. Before we break, though, I want to ask this one question. We're trying to, you know, the whole point in this is that we're trying to talk about multiple dams being removed, right? Has this ever happened in the Northeast where you've, where you've had, like, two, three, four dams removed in a couple year, you know, or five year? Span? We've done two. We've done two, <laughs> We've right? We've done two, and, right. and the by, but other states, have other states taken, you know, two, three, four away to make it now free-flowing, pretty much? We're, we're, you've seen stuff like that on probably some smaller systems, but not on our big rivers in the Northeast. Mm. You know, you think about, well, well two, two on the Sheepscot, two on the Penobscot. How many on the Pleasant in the old Project Fish and Main Council ASF days? One or two down there. You've, you've definitely done some smaller systems that have gotten rid of you know, the, the key barriers, but in terms of our large rivers, you know, what we saw, and I think the Kennebec is a great example, when Edwards Dam came out now almost 24 years ago now, yep. you know, that 18-mile stretch between what the Lockwood Dam in Waterville to Edwards you know, was an ecological dead zone before Edwards came out. Now you've got 5 million river herring in the Kennebec. You've got tens of thousands of American shad there. You've got sturgeon and striped bass all the way up to Waterville. Yeah. And seals right. you know, feeding on, on them and going up to Sebastocook. And a lot of that stuff happened within a, you know, a few years. Edwards coming out, the populations of fish have just grown and grown. And that's just with one dam removal. Yeah. And so and we've seen it on the Penobscot. We had two lower dam dams come out before Milford. The lower Penobscot's teaming to life as well. We've done a lot of work opening up some of the tributaries there for river herring, but now the, the population of river herring, the lower Penobscot's at least 5 million fish, with 3 million of them going above Milford. Good. And we've got a growing population of shad and you know striped bass and sturgeon going all the way up to Milford as well. So in those places, we are seeing you know that ecological and fisheries recovery yeah. pretty quickly. You know, A couple of generations of fish, particularly the river herring, you're going from well, on the case of the Penobscot, zero river herring got above VZ. I think in the 40-year history of the VZ fishway, there was one or two years where a couple thousand L-wives got above it. Yeah. So a river that should produce 10 or 15 million had nothing, <laughs> nothing above the town of VZ. Yeah. Now you've got 5 million in the lower river. Awesome. And, and I'll just say in terms of scale, there are a couple of projects I'd look at out west. One is the Elwa. Well, that was my question. El- El- Elwa was it was two much bigger dams than we're talking about here, and there they've seen recovery of steelhead and Pacific salmon. Is that a now naturally uh, uh, flowing river? It is. There, okay. there, there are no dams left. Is there after this has been done? Right. So this it hasn't happened in the Northeast that, that a river has been restored back to free through flowing that we know of. But we've got or a major well, we got a lot of smaller streams. I mean, we've had ones. we've had a couple of hundred dam removals in New England over the last. 25 or 30 years so yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of tributaries have been opened up a lot of smaller systems have been opened up but you know 
on a large scale, you know, we're we're seeing it now. The Kennebec and Penobscot are the two best examples that I'm aware of in the, yes. in the east. Right. And we're seeing great results. It's just for the species that need to go a lot further upriver. I mean, American Shad went up to Millinocket, so did River Elwise. Shad Pond in Medway. Cool. And same. So we, we've gotten the lower rivers opened up and restored in healthy, free-flowing rivers. Yeah. We're, we're now at the second phase of that of, you know, to get meaningful recovery further upriver, we've got, on the Kennebec, you know, four dams to deal with. We know four dams and fish restoration are not compatible. And so we need to come up with a solution where we can at least remove a couple of those dams, if not more. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see whatever happens in the coming years on the Kennebec is going to be make or break for that. Yeah. You know, if it if it's break, you know, maybe another generation from now or two generations, people can come back and finish the work that started with Edwards coming out in the late 90s. But, yeah. you know, for our lifetimes or most of our lifetimes, it, it stops in Waterville. Right. And that's because of dam relicensing comes around every 25 or yeah, 50. 30 to 30 to 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the Kennebec, you know, three of the dams come up for relicensing in 2036. Yeah. So I guess that's the next bite of the apple in, you know, a dozen years. But yeah. Atlantic Salmon, you know, don't have that much time. Yeah. My, so my question, maybe back to the Elwa, was there any, um, that's out west, right? That was a river that was removed for yep. free, it's now Washington. free flowing. Yeah, was there any, it comes out of Olympic National Park. Okay. Was there any, um, after removing them, was there anything they found that was was bad? Did it like harm something else? Did it harm like a uh, population upstream or something? Not, those fish coming not, again, not, not that I know of. There, there, were, there were a number of concerns there about human infrastructure, mm. um, water, municipal water supply, yep. industrial water supply, yep. um, tribal fish hatcheries. Like there were a bunch of things that, you know, they're in the infrastructure of these, you know, pieces of human infrastructure were built around the infrastructure of the yeah, dams sure. and those all had to get replaced. That was probably, I know this was the case on the, on the Penobscot project. We probably spent more money on that mitigation stuff than we did on the dam removals themselves. Yeah. You're talking um, about the repairing buffer. No, I'm talking about like, about like, like replacing, you know, providing a new water intake for, I see. Okay. for whatever, for a, yes. for, a, for a paper mill, providing a new water intake for a fish hatchery, yeah. providing water, you know, city water, because all that stuff used to come out of the impoundments. Gotcha. But, but in terms of um, either fish impacts or environmental impacts, again, I, I, I've heard nothing but recovery has gone faster than people thought it would. Yeah, the pros and, are. And, 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 and there have been benefits that people didn't expect. I mean, a major benefit that people didn't expect was the... Uh, and these were very, very large dams and very, very steep young mountains, so lots of sediment in the impoundments. That sediment moving downstream moved downstream very quickly, mm. and it then replenished beaches that had been eroding for a century, and they're now seeing like changes in the estuary that nobody ever expected cool. from that sediment that you know, was there historically, was then gone while the dams were in place for 100 years, and yeah. they're now seeing some of that you know, estuary habitat start to recover as well. Very cool. Um, well, listen, let's let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more Kennebec. I still want to talk a little bit more dam removal process, like what it does to the river. You kind of just touched on that, which is pretty cool. Um, those are just things that, like, I don't know. You know, general public doesn't know those things. You guys are just a little more well-versed in it. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of changes that can happen. I mean, chemical, you know, physical. There's a lot of, whole lot Water of stuff quality. beyond the fish. Huge. Yeah, Edward. When Edwards came out, the Kennebec went from Class C to Class B that summer. 
It's crazy in terms of it's basically measured from what the insect community looks like. Yeah, and it was instantaneous. As soon as the water started moving, the water quality improved. Sounds cool. I'd love to see a free flowing whole country. <laughs> I'd like to see what it was three hundred years ago. All right, let's take our break and right. we'll be back after. We take a short break. I wanted to point out that if this is your first time listening to our podcast, uh, please go on any major podcast venue and search for our previous episodes. My point in the podcast has always been to highlight Maine's awesome fly fishing opportunities and you know the people who really make it make it go here in our fly fishing community. Um, this is an unpaid podcast, so while I don't host episodes on a regular basis, I'm always looking for new or old folks here in our Maine community doing some great things to help you know improve our fisheries and help put Maine on the map so if you have any recommendations please send them my way on our Instagram page which is at the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. back from a nice dinner break here uh we're in brunswick shout out to nomad no it is nomad pizza nomad pizza it's pretty good it's pretty good here in the it was the fort andros mill andros andros okay um so we're gonna we're gonna kind of continue the conversation and um hear from jeff first about what's kind of currently going on with it with the kennebec dams and a lot of a lot of talk brewing around that and removal Potentially, sure. So there, um, there has been in place uh, since about 2012-13 an interim species protection plan for Atlantic salmon on the Lower Kennebec. That plan expired back in 2020, so we've been running for three years without one. Um, and in the middle of all that, the Shawmut Dam, which is the third dam on the river, Lockwood is in Waterville. Um, Hydro Kennebec is at the other end of Waterville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shawmut is just above them in Fairfield, and then Weston is in uh, Skowhegan. Um, so the third dam, Shawmut, comes up for relicensing. Hydropower dams have to get a license from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Those licenses last 30 to 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Shawmut is being relicensed right now. Its license expires, I think, in 2025. So within a year and a half or two years, there'll be a new license there. And that has triggered a process to look at the entire Lower Kennebec in terms of two things. One is the, its impacts on endangered salmon, mm-hmm. and that's happening through a process led by NOAA called a Section 7, Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act review, um, to look at impacts of the dams on salmon. And in addition to that, they have to look comprehensively at fish passage because a number of us, including the Atlantic Salmon Federation, signed a settlement agreement a long time ago. We all thought that we'd already have fishways and fish swimming up and down the river by now after Edwards Dam came out, but we don't. And so the Shawmut relicensing and the expiration of the Interim Species Protection Plan have triggered this review of the lower four dams on the river. 
Mm. Um, and that's happening, you know, again, one process is led by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, yep. and that's triggered this separate review by NOAA Fisheries of its impacts on salmon. And then just to make things a little bit more complicated, in addition, all of the dams to get a new license have to meet Maine's water quality standards. So coming along, that, go through? that goes through the Maine Department of Environmental Protection, and they okay. have to get a water quality certificate. So there's these... You know, multiple swirling regulatory processes really being triggered by Shawmut getting a new license. The rest of the dam, three lower dams on the river, won't, like, we have a chance to make changes now. The other three dams don't come up for relicensing until 2036. Okay. Um, and then Shawmut will likely get a new 50-year license, so Shawmut won't come up again until the second half of this century. So... If it was possible to remove all four dams, what would be the timeline that they'd actually all be able to, like the last one would be knocked down? What year are we talking? Well, that's a hard to, hard to answer. I mean, you, you would have to have an agreement, you know, with the dam owner. Sure. Um, groups like ASF and our partners, I think, would take the dams or raise the money at least to remove them. And so, I mean, if, if a deal is struck tomorrow, you're looking at a five to ten year period to do all the permitting, the studies, raise the money and start construction. So the Penobscot project was about a dozen years from, you know, once the agreement was reached or settled to the final construction of Howland, about that long, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, that's what I, 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 might get, I may get these years off a little bit, but I, I think what's important, just because just I think the process would be similar, we did on the Penobscot was there was first a conceptual agreement. So the dam owner... The agency, some well, some some, but not all of the agencies that were involved, um, and environmental groups, and in that case, the state of Maine, and also the Penobscot Nation, all got together and basically in a closed room said, "Let's talk about a win-win solution. What would it look like?" And the short answer was, "Sell the dams for their market value. Mm-hmm. You guys take over the licenses and and you know create a new organization to take them out." Um, and that was, we then took that public as a conceptual agreement, sort of like, hey, here's what we think is a good idea, but those of you who weren't in the room, what do you think of this idea? What are the impacts going to be on the towns? What are the impacts going to be on resources we haven't thought about? Got feedback from people, you know, will we be able to raise the money? Um, and I think if I remember right, we, that took about two years and was, and generally the fa- response was favorable and we flagged some issues they had to get solved in permitting. And then there was a final agreement, I think, I think this conceptual agreement was 2006. The final agreement was 2009 or 10. And construction at the dams, removal was in 2012 and 2014. And the Howland Bypass was finished in 2016. So, you know, 10 plus years from beginning to end. And I don't think, I, I think that's probably pretty close to as quickly as it could possibly happen. And I say that based on, you know, We've seen similar projects out west. I mean, Peace, they've been talking about dam removals on the Klamath that may finally happen sometime in the future for 20 years now. So, that, But optimistically, I think you could be 10 years from, from reaching conceptual agreement to permits and the dams out. So would all of us in this room potentially still be alive? <laughs> These to be removed. Well, I'm the oldest person here, I think, and I'm 55. I'm certainly planning to make it to retirement, uh, and 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 sometime thereafter. Um, uh, I mean, I, I I think that's right, but it but it is it's not going to happen instantaneously, and it's also not going to happen without a tremendous amount of 
regulatory process. I mean, I talked about how complicated it is to license yeah, a dam. All those different things. All those things have to come together to surrender a dam to. Yeah. Um, plus, you have to figure out physically how are you going to get the dam out of the river. And obviously, you won't be producing hydropower anymore, but the river provides other services mm -hmm. that are built around current water levels, and those are going to have to be replaced. Okay. As examples, on the Penobscot, uh, the, what was then the Red Shield Mill, Old Town Fuel and Fiber, Georgia Pacific, now it's Nine Dragons, so it's had multiple owners, but that paper mill took its water from upstream of the dam and they had to get, have a new water intake built. The city of, um, which city was it? City of Old Town had a sewer outfall that was in the impoundment and had to be moved because as the water level changed, their sewer outfall was no longer going to meet DEP standards for, for, a, for a sewage plant. And multiple other things, storm drains, you know, banks that might have some erosion, all those things would have to get addressed. And, you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and Maine DEP are going to be making sure those issues are addressed before they give you an order to go yes. forward with removal. Yeah. So just to kind of move forward a little bit here, um, the question of who and what will benefit from these dams being removed is a great question. We sh I think we should start with the what will benefit, so not humans, right? Like, let's talk fish, birds, you know, ocean life, bug life. So what will, what will benefit from these dams being removed? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I really think the answer is, you know, pretty much everything. Mm. You know, we, for the species we're trying to restore, like river herring, shad, salmon, eels, they all have these niches and roles in the ecosystem, in the, in the environment. In river herring in particular, I mean, part of their lot in life essentially is to be eaten by everything else. And so a, a river, an LY for a blueback herring, you know, is going to be eaten by seals and whales and gulls in the ocean. You know, it's eaten by striped bass and ground fish as well. And then the freshwater is eaten by ospreys and eagles and fur-bearing mammals like other fish. So you, you restore, remove a dam, you bring back those fish species and they're feeding you know, a whole bunch of critters in the fr freshwater, land environment, estuary, and out into the Gulf of Maine. Yeah. So you have these huge impacts on food webs, um, the whole ecosystem, all the ecosystem dynamics and the health of the Gulf of Maine, you know, from the Gulf itself all the way to the headwaters of these streams gets improved and, yeah. and benefits from it. Um, in addition, you know, removing a dam you're not just bringing back the fish, but you're restoring natural processes to a river. Dams interrupt, you know, they slow down water movement considerably. They impact water chemistry with lower dissolved oxygen, higher temperatures. temperatures yeah. um, they do a whole bunch, they stop nutrients coming in from the oceans that historically went, in terms of marine derived nutrients, came back with these fish and helped with primary productivity yeah. in our our streams and must, it must mess with the riparian buffers too, right? Because like, does it increase flooding you know, after the runoff, or, or would it? So typically, what happens is, you know, none of the dams on the Kennebec that we're talking about have any any benefit for flood control. Mm. And in many cases, dams like those actually make upstream flooding worse, right? Because they're having a big impoundment versus a natural river with riparian areas you have natural control to some extent of flooding. And so these dams and man-made impoundments typically make flooding of communities upriver worse. You remove them, and most of the time, I can't say always, but most of the time, you're considerably decreasing you know, flood levels um, from the dam removals and restoring the natural river. In terms of the riparian habitat, you are, you are changing things you know, from a riparian area or field or forest 
next to this kind of stagnant pond area. And so you have changes there, but typically you're going to have the regrowth of areas that are exposed very quickly with grasses and shrubs and trees coming in. You're going to have a much more dynamic environment and much more dynamic interplay between the river and the riparian habitat with all the critters that live there really benefiting from the increasing forage, you know, the, the free-flowing river. And so you get a lot of benefits there, and those changes happen fairly quickly. But you do see those changes, and they all tend, in terms of the environment, tend to be very positive. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, I mean, we're humans, right? Humans don't like change. Especially people, once they reach my age, they really start not liking no, change. That's a, mean, that's a meaner thing, too. Mainers don't like um, change very much. And, and there's always the fear that when something changes, it's going to be a drastic change with huge negative impacts. Mm. And I, mean, I think about, you know, removal of the Edwards Dam and the fight we had over that in the 90s, or the dams on the Penobscot, which were not quite as contentious, but there were still people with divergent opinions. Some of the small dams that John and I have worked on, um, you know, in, in most cases... I think in all, in all the cases I can think of, first of all, I'd say at, at, on the big river dams, like the, on the Kennebec and on the, on the Penobscot, it's difficult to go back to the dam sites now and have somebody point to you where the impoundment used to be. Interesting. Like you, just, you feel like you're on a river, yep. and maybe you see the abutment of the dam. Oh, that's where the dam was? Well, where the hell did it go? And you, you, you can't tell. Cool. Um, and the extent the things that people were afraid of were going to happen, there's going to be these vast mud flats that are going to stink and let... It, like it just hasn't happened, and you know, kind of as soon as it happened, like, oh, that's all it was, you know. Um, and then on the ecological side, it's really hard to overemphasize how much of a difference having a herring run in the Kennebec and the Penobscot has made. And I'll just give you like two kind of e ecology examples: seals swim up the Sebastopol River to Benton Falls on the Elwood Run. Like they're following those fish. 60 miles upstream of where you used to see them in the river. You used to see them in Mary Meeting Bay and nowhere above there. And now they're going 60 miles farther upstream. Um, and so by more, far... So more seals are able to live here, right? And they're, able to, they're able to chase food in an environment where they're able to get it easy. And they've got, and they've got more food and you know, they're, they're eating, they're eating uh, alewives rather yeah. than salmon or striped bass or something else. They're eating these abundant bait fish because so it's a better food source. So more seals also means more great white sharks, which are a huge fear of mine. So now I have to worry about sharks. Well, now I've terrified you about the great change, but yeah. it won't be as bad as you think, <laughs> I swear. And besides, the great white sharks are coming anyway. Um, the, the other big change, and I hope you don't have a fear of birds with shark beaks, but <laughs> the biggest concentration of um, eagles on the East Coast is now sitting at the mouth of the Sebastopol River every spring for as long as the alewives are present. And that, again, that's not just birds from, you know, the lower Kennebec River, that's birds from throughout New England, it's mostly sub-adults. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that aren't sitting on nests, they're, they don't have babies at home. They're coming there because that's where the food and the party is. Cool, very cool. Um, and in terms of, we'll talk about people after, but in terms of fish, yeah, removing the dam, or the, all the dams, and it's naturally free-flowing uh, free from the Sandy all the way down to Kennebec, right? Um, are there cons to that for, for fish, like invasive species being able to move upstream? You know, you got some pike, you got some small, you got good smallmouth population, and all those little sections of, between the dams there. Does that hurt the upper Sandy? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you know, we have you know, plenty of invasives in Maine in our rivers, our lakes and ponds, and I think the real question is, you know, if all the dams came out, you know, what is the real risk? You know, Belgrade Lakes, unfortunately, pike were introduced there in, I think, the 70s, 
maybe a little bit before then. Late 60s. You know, so they're, they're all throughout there. They can access the lower Kennebec and periodically, I think maybe one or two has gone at the fishway at Lockwood and Waterville. But, you know, the real risk, you know, so if the dams came out, yeah, technically, I guess a pike could swim 40 miles from Waterville to the Sandy River. Yeah. The, the odds are, you know, those fish are not going to do that. And if pike are going to be put in the Sandy River or go to the Sandy River, it's going to be in a bucket, which is, it's happened once in the past, about 15 years ago. Fortunately, the pike didn't establish um, where they were stocked and aren't there anymore. But that's how invasives move. You know, pike have had access to the lower Kennebec forever. And fortunately, they're there and they'll move downstream and they have. Yeah. They've done the same thing here in the, in the Androscoggin. I mean, there's pike from Sabatis Lake all the way down through the impoundments of the Andro to Mary Meeting Bay. Yeah. Um, but they're, you know, they move downstream and there's no habitat really for, like, for pike in particular in the Sandy River. Yeah. There's very, very few lakes in there and the lakes that are there don't have the characteristics like the Belgrades or places like Pusha on the Penobscot where pike were introduced 20 years ago. It's just phenomenal habitat for them. We don't have that. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can't say never and there's no risk, but right. in terms of our experience with invasives in Maine for the past hundred years, um, I think there's very, very low risk, you yeah. know, particularly from pike. Um, and we have smallmouth bass everywhere. Yeah, you know, there's already smallmouth in the sandy. They're all over the place. They're, they're in not the, interested in that. They're in the lower the sandy, but they're not in the upper upper part where we have pretty much all the wild or the Atlantic salmon restoration efforts and the spawning yeah. and where you've got the wild brown trout in the upper sandy. Yeah. There aren't any bass there and, you know, dealing with a dam removal in Skowhegan or... There's nothing in, to do with that. Yeah, and Waterville has zero impact on that and it's unfortunate that we've got bass everywhere in, in our cold water fish habitat but, you know, opening up the, the river and the benefits of restoring, you know, four million more river herring above Waterville coming yes. up through Skowhegan up to the Sandy River another half million American shad all the way up through there. The benefits uh, for the ecosystem, for the environment, and for us as humans, whether for fishing or looking at the fish or anything else, there are so much bigger, broader benefits from restoring a natural environment and our native fish populations and the wildlife that depends on them than I think worrying about the potential risk of a pike swimming 40 miles um, into, a, into a place where it doesn't have good habitat. Sure. The other thing is, I think you, I mean, one of the trade-offs you'll get is right now, the impoundments are, they're not great pike habitat, but they're suitable pike habitat. The free-flowing river is a whole lot worse habitat. So, you know, there, there, there's, you know, you get the trade-off of losing the impoundments to make things a little bit less suitable for pike. You're also losing the dams, which you can consider as barriers if you like to. Yeah. But I've got a pretty good sense of where the bass and pike are in Maine. Mm -hmm. And if dams were barriers to their getting there, they wouldn't be in all the places. I mean, they wouldn't be in the Belgrades. They wouldn't be in Cobbesee. They wouldn't be in Pushaw. Sure. We wouldn't have bass and jackman. I mean, those fish didn't swim there. Right. And we're, if, if, if our primary strategy for dealing with invasive fish species is keeping dams on the landscape, it's a failing strategy. Yeah, I mean, I, I always worry about just being a big ranger guy. Like, I worry about smallmouth getting up there. And, you know, you're... I think there's some fear of like, all right, you got fish come up to Sandy. Sandy's so close to, to Rangeley, but there's not really a connection there. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, someone could just bring a bucket full of smallmouth up and put it into a lake in Rangeley somewhere. And like they did into Ombagog about 30 years ago. Right. Right. I mean, right. not like the dams on the end of Skog. And, sure. and actually, pike were introduced to Ombagog. And surprisingly to me, because Ombagog looks to me like pretty good pike habitat. They, taken. they were confirmed there in the, I think, mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And 
I haven't heard of any in a long time. I don't, I'm yeah. not saying they're gone, yeah. but I haven't heard of one after a couple of reports 25, yeah. 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, when you remove those dams too, like you said, you're taking out all of that mucky, muddy bottom with the, you know, the tall grass that the, the pike love to live in, right? Like that stuff all goes away. Um, what does the river bottom look like? When you take dams out, it, it depends on the stretch of river. You know, you will have you know in, our, in in the impoundments behind the dams, you know, some sediment buildup, and it could be a little bit or it could be a lot in places. Um, one of the things that we I think we learned on the Penobscot, and Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a, a thought there'd be a lot of sediment behind those dams, but here on the east coast, our dams, well, most of our dams are fairly low head, you know, particularly lower down the river. Yes, and so the dams impact the the movement of sediment to some extent but you don't have massive billups behind it because the spring freshets typically carry out, carry a lot more of that sand or sediment downstream. Gotcha. Um, but in terms of the bottom, very, very quickly, particularly even just after one season of, you know, fall rains, you know, ice coming downstream, you're seeing a natural bottom in places, whether it's um, ledge, um, big rocks, you know, cobble, sand, you're getting back that diverse kind of bottom geology that was there for millennia that you see in natural rivers. You see great diversity in terms of substrate. You're getting that back incredibly quickly. Mm. And certainly there are dead, natural dead water areas that will you know, stay slow moving and you, maybe you have soft bottoms in places, but you know, I think we all kind of know from trout fishing or landlocked salmon fishing what a natural free-flowing river looks like and that's what you get on these big rivers just at a much bigger scale. How do you think the temperatures would be affected by removing the dams? Like the water temperatures, you know, when we're getting into August, fall, and we've had some really warm temps. So I think, you know, in the summer, the peak summer months, you know, our rivers are still going to be, get warm, Mm -hmm. but removing the impoundments, you do eliminate that heat source. You know, the impoundments hold more heat than a free-flowing river, so those areas get warmer and the water coming out of them is warmer. Um, You're still going to have periods, you know, with warm water. We have that free-flowing rivers now, particularly in late July through August, early September, um, but what you, one improvement you do get is even though you get those warm days, you've got the impoundments, the rivers cool down a lot more at night. It's kind of called this diurnal temperature change. Yep. And so versus if you've got a bunch of impoundments, you know, the water is going to stay relatively warm 24 hours a day. Yeah. Versus the free-flowing river, you will have that period when the sun's not there where you're going to get a lot cooler temperatures, you know, several degrees Celsius change, which is certainly pretty significant for cold water fish. Yeah. So it's a much better improvement that way. In addition, you know, the free-flowing river, the turbulent water holds a lot more oxygen. You know, they're much more aerated, so you get oxygen, and colder water holds more oxygen. So you're really seeing a fundamental change in terms of that water chemistry by removing that unnatural fake lake impoundment area and getting that free-flowing river again. Yeah. Yeah. One way of thinking about both the sediment issue and the water quality issue is, and and again, I'll use the example because we can go look at it today. So Edward, when Edwards Dam came out of the Kennebec, um, I was one of the people who the day after the breach went in, paddled from Waterville to Augusta. There were, I don't know, 25 or 30 of us. Um, And I went back and did that annually for for several years, sometimes with reporters, sometimes not. Um, And what you saw on that first day there was a lot of, I mean, people say sediment. What we saw was a lot of sand that was moving. We did not see, you weren't seeing mud, you weren't seeing fines. Those get pushed up onto the floodplain. You did see a lot of sand moving, and you saw that sand moving aggressively the first summer 
as the impoundment was flushing itself out. Mm. And then you, and then, and I'm told the, the engineer's calculation was that the amount of sediment that was going to move during the breach, what, like that was stored in the impoundment and delivered to the lower river, was about equal to what would move annually on the annual flood. Yep. So like that year, we moved twice as much sediment downstream towards Hollowell as we would have in a normal year. But after that, that section of the river, other than you could still see the bathtub ring until the vegetation reestablished itself, but that piece of the river looked just like the stuff above it in Waterville mm. that wasn't affected by the impoundment. And I think the coolest thing that we saw happen was that within a year of the breach going in, um, DEPs, they have these longtime water quality monitoring stations that look at the insect community and use that, you know, the community structure of which species of caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies do you have present as a, as a way to calculate the water quality. That impoundment went from having difficulty attaining class C standards to being better than class B in a year. It's fantastic. So, I mean, was there some sediment there? Yeah, yeah. a lot of sand that moved through. Yeah. We also saw um, even the first fall, we saw lampreys spawning upstream on the gravel bars that were exposed when wow. that sand moved, wow. which was also, I mean, lampreys, they're not the world's most charismatic fish, but they're really cool. Yep. And seeing them spawning in the fall is pretty, uh, sorry, in the, sorry, the first spring, they're, uh, they spawn in May and June. And they're part of the natural ecosystem there. So. And, uh, and, uh, and then they die, so they're providing a lot of things for things in the river to eat. Yeah. Um, so kind of switching, we've talked about the fish and the wildlife and the Gulf of Maine would benefit from it. This is the harder question I mean, as I've been thinking about. It's like how, because there's a lot of concerns about how dam removal might affect humans, right? Between the hydroelectric generation and the, the, the mill in Skowhegan. Um, how will uh, removing them benefit people? A little different question. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of ways what we've seen from removals, whether they're small or large, is, you know, the environmental benefits have a direct impact on people, whether it's folks like us who like to angle or paddle or watch wildlife, mm. you know, that improves our quality of life. I yep. think it improves the quality of place in these communities on the river, you know, provides a much greater diversity of activities. Um, having better water quality, a cleaner river, that's always a win, you know. Yeah. You couldn't really, well, I guess you could swim, you know, in, in the Kennebec River in Augusta 25 years ago. I'm not sure you'd want to. Um, now I think you can um, and not have to worry about, you know, getting a staph infection or something else. You know, it's, you, yeah. get, you get all those benefits, which I think add up to, you know, having that cleaner, healthier environment does translate into recreation, quality of life. There's economic opportunities that come with having a much healthier river, whether it's guiding, you know, paddling, all those things, you know, really add up for a lot of benefits. And also we talked about this too. I didn't think about this till now, but less flooding. Right, or the flooding wouldn't be as impactful upstream of those things. Yeah, I mean, all that's not really case-by-case basis, but I think generally overall you see a, a lowering you know, of flood levels in places. Sometimes it's it, pretty significant. It, it, can't, it, it will only get better. It won't get worse. Mm. But the differences might not be all that large. Yeah. So just to kind of flip it now, um, we're living in a time where you know, renewable green energy is it's the forefront of every commercial you see on TV these days, right? Um, you're talking about removing hydroelectric generation. Um, you want to talk about how the the dams, those four dams, how much hydroelectric they use, and if there's other ways we can supplement in you know, electric generation. Well, yeah, and I think uh, the big thing here is trying to look at a bigger you know, 30,000 foot level is we screwed up our rivers and have for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And all we're trying to do, one, prevent Atlantic salmon from 
going extinct in the United States. But two, it's really trying to rebalance our rivers. You know, hydropower is important, you know, for renewable energy, um, non-carbon producing energy for the most part. Um, but you know, we've got to make we've got to balance that with the needs of the environment of people, you know, of these fish species and, you know, and for ourselves ultimately. And so the work on the Penobscot River, some of the work on the Kennebec before has been an attempt to try to try to do that. Um, so for dams like the lower four we've been talking about, they're not highly productive or highly useful or produce a lot of hydropower. Yeah. I mean, yes, they produce hydropower, but that power is easy, easily replaceable, whether it's from increasing hydropower at dams that are never going to go away further upriver in the Kennebec or through things like solar. Mm. Um, so I think we can definitely do that. And also, we've got the natural kind of ecosystem resilience, climate change adaptation side of things where with the change in climate, if we want to have the fish species that we care about, you know, whether it's Atlantic salmon or brook trout or these other fish species, you know, we need to have our natural environment be much more resilient and resistant to climate change. Having these man-made impoundments, you know, they're ecological dead zones compared to free-flowing rivers. Sure. That's only going to get worse over time with climate change. Sure. Yeah. And if we want to have our native fish species or native wildlife that depend on them, having a healthy free-flowing river, um, lower temperatures and those natural processes are a pretty important way of dealing with a changing climate in the future. Yeah. So I think, you know, removing dams that produce renewable power is not inconsistent with still meeting our climate change goals for maintaining our species, our, our rivers, and, and other things. Yeah. Um, could, could, I'll go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's also worth, I think, thinking about the numbers at these dams. Uh, combined, the four dams are a total of about 46 megawatts of generation, which, I mean, sounds like a lot, right? I mean, you can spin that out for a year and, you know, calculate that and, you know, how, how long will light a light bulb, and it's, it's real energy. Um, but those four dams combined are about half what the Wyman Dam produces by itself. Just itself. And just Wyman, about, and, and Wyman, Wyman, Wyman's 82 or 83 megawatts, yeah. so it's not quite twice as big as these four combined. Is Wyman the biggest in Maine in terms of energy? No, it's the biggest on the Kennebec. Okay, okay. Uh, either Gulf Island on the Androscoggin mm -hmm. or um, the lower dams on the West Branch in the Millinocket Medway area yeah. are, the, are, big, are a little bit bigger. Uh, but, but you've also got just above Wyman, you've got Indian Pond, which is another 70 megawatts. And those dams, I mean, Indian Pond is above where any sea run, like Indian Pond has no sea run fish impacts. It's got some other impacts, but yeah. um, Wyman has some habitat behind it. But if you look at the trade-off, those are two dams that produce enormous amounts of energy, um, much more reliably than these lower river dams do. The lower river dams are run of river. Those dams upriver have storage. Um, and their impacts on the environment are much, much higher. You just you got to look at these dams one at a time and figure out where the right balance is. And in terms of uh, what do they produce for hydropower versus, you know, do these kill the river? Or do they have some in impacts on the river we can live with? And these are dams that kill the river. Yes. Um, and produce, you know, a little bit of hydropower. Yeah. Uh, and there are lots of ways to produce that. I, I sit on my local planning board. We're permitting high, uh, solar projects in the 5 to 10 megawatt range wow. three or four times a year. Yeah. So my little town and a couple of other little towns doing that is going to replace more know, than those dams. Figure about twice as much solar power because yeah. it, only, it only runs when the sun's out. But, you know, you, you could replace these with solar power. You could replace them with wind power. Um, an Indian Pond or a Wyman, it's, it's a very different equation. Yeah. Do, does Brookfield own all four of the dams? Yes. Okay. Um, does Brookfield do solar power as well? 
Yeah, they do. I mean, they're, they're a global kind of titan for renewable energy. So they've got, you know, geothermal, hydro, wind, solar. And I think just last year, they acquired a couple of other companies pretty close to a billion dollars in acquisitions for solar. Mm. You know, so massive money. I mean, these dams are a fraction of that value. Could, could like, organizations come together, government? I don't know. I don't know the intricacies of how that all works, but could we all just come together and offer them some land so they can put some solar power up in exchange for the dams? I, that, that would be great. I or, think. Or, or permitting certainty. I mean, again, yeah. the, I, I think the model is what happened up on the Penobscot. Now, there it was a hydropower for hydropower trade. Yep. Given that the Kennebec is pretty well built out for hydropower, I don't think there are those opportunities on the Kennebec, although there may be, and it'd be worth looking at. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, rebalancing, I mean, what happened on the Penobscot? We paid fair market value for the dams. Brookfield, I mean, yeah, it wasn't Brookfield, it was the previous owner of the dams. PPL reinvested that in other energy investments mm. with some regulatory certainty that we all agreed we'd support those permits. I mean, that, that saves people a lot of money if they know they're going into a deal with broad public support that they're not going to have an NIMBY fight over the solar field or the wind project sure. that they're dealing with. Sure. And I to speak on this a little more, I know that there's been some talk in the state about how, um, you know, if you were to take these dams out, it, would, it could kill the mill in Skowhegan. I mean, what what does the mill need the river for? Let's just start yeah. there, right? What do they need the river yeah, for? Yeah, I know. And that's just... I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron. It is an important issue to, I think, clarify what goes on. So essentially, the, the mill, there's two purposes or uses of the river that the mill depends on. Um, both deal with the Shawmut Dam impoundment. So they get their water for mill processes, you know, big water intake, draws water from the impoundment, you know, to make paper. Yeah. And so and then when it's all that's been used and they've got wastewater, that then goes out through a different pipe into the impoundment as well. And so, you know, the big concern that's been out there is if you remove the Shamit Dam, people are saying you remove the dam, the mill can't stay in business, it shuts down. There's not enough water, you don't well, have water to draw in there. I don't even sure if people have made it that clear. I think they're saying Shamit Dam goes away, the mill closes. They're not saying why. Right. And I think the issue is the, to fix, particularly the water intake, um, could cost a substantial amount of money. But we feel pretty strongly like on the Penobscot and like a gazillion other places in the world, it's an engineering solution. It can be fixed, and that's part of the cost of removing the dams. We're willing to bear that cost. You know, the NGOs um, presumably will be getting lots of federal funding for an implementation of a project, private funding. We would cover 100% of that cost, have no impact on the mill. Yeah, so you would essentially, part of ASF and others would be funding an inta- a new intake and outtake system, basically. Yeah, exactly. So that the mill can operate as it as it is now with no impact on their operations. Great. And the same would be true for any municipal water. And I think there is a there is a municipal water intake for the Ruck River. Yeah, I, I think Skowhegan's intake is far enough upstream; it's not impacted. Yeah. But if it were, it'd be, I mean, again, there's infrastructure in the river. When the river changes, that infrastructure is going to have to get adjusted, and some of those adjustments are going to be big. And I think probably the mill intake the intake. Maybe the discharge, too. I think the intake's probably the bigger of those. Yeah. But it's essentially, that that's an engineering and a plumbing problem. It's not a, the mill cannot exist without it. Because yeah, you can and, still draw water from the river. And, and, and the, the flow in the river is not going to change. The flow in the river in the future is going to be the same. The surface of the impoundment will be lower. Mm-hmm. But if 
uh, and this is a pretty typical summer flow, 3,000 cubic feet per second is going through 24-7, you know, in, in a dry summer, and that's about where you see low flows in the summer down there. That same flow is going to be happening. It's going to be going through a river full of riffles and pools instead of through a big impoundment. Right. Like pond. Right. And, and um, you know, there was, a, there was a, mill, a water intake built for the uh, Old Town Fuel and Fiber Mill up in Old, in Old Town. There was also, this was kind of sad, uh, at the time in, when Edwards came out, Statler Tissue had just closed in Augusta. And one of the, th- one of the pieces of, of mitigation that was done when Edwards came out was to build Statler Tissue, a new water intake, but they'd already gone under and the mills never reopened. Yeah. But, but it was considered, you know, make it whole so that if the town can make use of that property for some other industrial use in the future that needs water, I doubt the water intake still functional 25 years later, but, yeah. but it was built and it would have been had anybody been there to use it. I think I think a big reason why I wanted to come talk to you guys is because I'm short-sighted in that I don't know I'm not educated enough about the topic right and and for me I care a lot about fish and I want fish to move up that totem pole fish seem like they're at the bottom of everything right it's like people animals and then fish are like the very bottom then down there with the bugs right so to me I I care about the fish pastures but then when I hear like you know hey they're gonna have to close a, a mill because of it right well i come from a, a generation of mill workers in my family and that kind of is like ee, it's hard to put fish above human and their their well-being and stuff right so like the information you just shared that's not that hasn't really been conveyed to the general public you know it's it's not being well publicized and so i think that's part of why i wanted to talk to you guys right it was also to just be like hey there are other solutions out there, right? It doesn't just have to be, you know what? Take the dams out. There goes the mill, right? Or you want to keep the mill? You have to keep the dams. There's workarounds like we just talked about. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think you know it's a it's a very effective kind of PR message if you want to keep these dams, you know, in perpetuity and not have to deal with, you know, talk of dam removal or anything else. You know, get people scared that 900 jobs or 1,000 jobs are going to go away, and yeah, it changes the conversation. Um, and the reality is, you know. Free-flowing river and the mill can coexist, and if in some you know slight chance that you couldn't fix that problem, you know for Sappy Mill, we've gone on the record publicly saying that the Shopman Dam will stay. Yeah, we feel that that is not going to happen. But if it, if that were the case, then that dam stays. But it, it's hard to believe that you can't fix the water intake and water discharge um, issue at the, at yeah. the site. For sure. The, the other thing I'd say is, even had we not made that commitment, if we proposed to remove the dam without addressing the issues for the mill and any other similar issues that might come up, because there may be things out there we don't know about today that you know people haven't thought about, um, we wouldn't get through the permitting process because you know you're going to put 900 people out of work and take away the biggest wood market in the state of Maine. Like DEP and FERC are not giving us permits for that project when right. they see the comments that come in with. Now, if we're addressing that issue, you get the permits. That's what's happened in other cases. If you're not, you know, you, that, that, that's not the permitting process you want to be in the middle of. It's going to, be a, it's going to have to get taken care of, or the Shawmut Dam is going to stay in place because it won't get a permit to be removed. Right, right. So, so we've talked about who and what will benefit from the dams and also talked about potential cons, right? Um, we, we missed one big benefit. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We have not ahead. talked about well, shad fishing. <laughs> oh, talk about shad fishing for a minute. That's, this is a thing that people haven't caught on to yet. And it's uh, for people like, I don't know, like, are you a good fisherman, Jeff? 
I've been fishing for a long time. Okay. Does that I'm mean you're not sure good? <laughs> well, I've heard that shad are somewhat easy to catch because there's just so many of them, they, right? They, so. they, they, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was exiled from Maine for a few years after college. I lived in New Jersey, and I used to sneak out to fish shad in the Delaware, which mm-hmm. was like the easiest thing for me to find. And New Jersey's a hard place to fish. All the water's private. You can't just go on a pond and go bass fishing like you can here. Um, and so I like I learned to catch shad in the Delaware, which probably has the biggest run on the East Coast. No no dams until way up in the headwaters in the Delaware. It's wide open to the ocean. Shad are pretty hard to catch. Now I, I didn't have a boat. I was doing it from shore. But like I eventually figured out how to catch a few. I came home to Maine, and it was like, yeah, it'd be fun to do that. And kind of it happens before the Mayfly hatches start in the spring, so it'd be it'd be fun to do. It fills that that period. It fills that, that it fills right that now. gap. They're here about the first of May every year. Yeah. Um, but um, as soon as Edwards Dam came out, within a year, people caught the first shad in Waterville, and we talked about the life cycle for salmon. Shad are about a five-year life cycle from spawning to their their adults returning after they go back to the ocean. Yeah. Five years later, the shad fishery in Waterville just turned on, and quite a few people, not very many at first, mostly people who are members of the local TU chapter, like pioneered the shad fishery. The stripers were there instantly. Yeah. The, the, the river herring were there instantly, and the stripers chased them up. The shad took a little bit longer to recover, but it got to the point that, um, you know, somebody who knew the right place to put their boat at anchor and had a competent fisherman in the boat can catch 30 or 40 shad in an hour. And what, I mean, would, you, what would you compare them to, like, on a fly rod? What fish would you compare catching shad to? Um, you know, the thing they're probably most similar to that I've fished for would be baby tarpon. They jump. Yep. Um, tarpon are sort of, I think tarpon are herring, too. I could be wrong about that. But very, very similar behavior. Um, they're not feeding, but they're just, I mean, they're there in the thousands. Yeah. And you're basically, you know, you're swinging something wet, typically on a sinking line, or if you're fishing with spinning gear, you're fishing a shad dart on, on, on spinning gear, and you're basically just drifting it through, and they kind of pick it up because they're curious, like like steelhead fishing during sure. the spawn kind of thing. Sure. Uh, one of their nicknames is the poor man's salmon. Poor man's salmon. Poor man's salmon, because yeah. they are acrobatic. They, are they do leap, you know, like a salmon will. And, they, and they'll run from, you know, small shad, 16, 17 inches, and a big one's you know, mid twenties and five or six pounds. So yeah, they get they get bigger than that, but you will you will routinely be catching fish where at the bottom end of the range they're 15, 16 inches and up to the mid twenties. Um, and it, and you know you fish on a, a six, seven or eight weight if you're fly fishing. Okay. You know, medium, medium, medium light spinning gear. Um, it's it's just a tremendously fun fishery. That's good. Listen, one thing we don't talk about here is spinning gear. This is a fly fishing podcast. Sorry. <laughs> so. I, would, I, I would add, Aaron, you know, about 60% of the shad habitat in the whole Kennebec is above the Lockwood Dam in Waterville. So that stretch in particular from Waterville to Skowhegan mm. would just produce a massive amount of adult shad yeah. in the hundreds of thousands. Just that one first hand. Right. And so, you know, that habitat, you know, from... Waterville up can produce about 400,000 shad. So it's a pretty sizable number. And for, I could imagine that fishery, you know, in Skowhegan below the gorge or someplace where you've got even tens of thousands of shad coming up through there in the springtime, just be a phenomenal resource for, for the region. Yeah. Having that there. Absolutely. Um, and and all, I mean, all the way up to Sandy to Farmington. The historical records have shad going all the way to Farmington. All the way to Farmington. Probably not crazy. much above Farmington where the river gets steeper. Yeah. You know, I drive through Farmington all the time and I drive by the Sandy River coming down out of, out of range of there and I look at that river and I'm just like 
I don't ever see anybody like fishing it hardly at all. I think most people fish it down by Farmington, New Sharon for for stock browns yeah. mostly. You know, stock yeah. There's fish. there's uh well, won't say where, but there's some good wild trout in there in, in places up up high. But it doesn't seem like it is very heavily fished. Yeah, and yeah. I look at it; it's an awesome looking river. And I mean, how cool would that be to be catching shad in Farmington? Well, this is this is a big enough region that I don't think this is a secret. The main stem from about strong up. A little bit of stocking above strong, but yeah. once you get much above strong, and all the tributaries from strong to the headwaters are good wild brook trout, and some of them hold wild browns as well. Yeah, but there there is some there is some good fishing there because it's high elevation and cold. Yes, which I don't say much about the places we're trying to restore Atlantic salmon. Yeah, like you know even uh, I used to work on the sheep scud on Atlantic salmon. I used to work in the duck trap. I don't say they're high elevation and cold, um, but the Sandy's high elevation and cold. Yes. It's one of the few places in Maine, some of those tributaries, I don't feel bad going trout fishing in July and August. Yeah. There's still four feet of snow right Because they're still in the low 60s. Yeah. There's still four feet of snow. And they're they're draining right off of Saddleback and Mount Abraham and, you know, it's their mountain valleys. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a special place. Um, We've talked a lot of great things. I I think to kind of wrap it up, um, I think we need to talk about that currently there's no fish passage on those four dams or if there is which which ones have fish passage which don't um it's insufficient and just saying like basically right now the fish don't currently have a fighting chance of getting upstream yeah so currently you know lockwood dam has a a fishway it's a dead-end fishway fish swim in they get trapped stuck there and then they're the salmon are put in a truck and then driven around. But the other fish... There's no, there's no free swim passage into the impoundment. Yeah. There's, there's literally a pipe that ends in a parking lot. Interesting. It's a fun... It, it, it's pretty interesting to see. Like, you show... I've showed it. I've taken a lot of people on the truck. Yeah, that's the fishway. And they said, where does it go? Right there. So they can put in a hose and run the run the fish into a truck. <laughs> so so that's that's the first dam. 1.1 miles upriver is Hydro-Kennebec. There actually is a $15 million fish lift. I think that was the cost at the time seven, eight years ago when it was built. It's never been run, never operated. Because um, what fish would you be putting in there? Yeah, there's no fish there Small because mouth. everything's trucked around and it's far better. You know, if you put, if you had salmon go there, there's no place for them to go. They, mm-hmm. they would swim between Hydro-Kennebec and Shawmut. There's no spawning habitat between there. And so the salmon are trucked around. I want to come back to you. There's no fish there. Remember I told you that the friends of mine were catching 30 and 40 salmon an hour? Mm. The Lockwood. Chad, Chad oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> oh my God, it's getting late. Yeah, it must be after supper. Um, you, uh, um, most years the fish lift does not capture as many as an angler can catch in an hour. Wow, a handful of years it's caught a couple hundred. Yeah, um, but I mean there are tens of thousands of shad sitting at, immediately, and and the people I know who are fishing are fishing 150 feet below the dam. It's not like they're not there. Right. They're right at the base of the dam. The lift just doesn't. But those shads, just it's moderately it. effective for salmon, uh, but still probably only fifty percent passage of salmon with the existing lift, and um, and who knows what the efficiency will be at the next dam. Um, and then, the, but there. the next two dams up from there, there's no fish yeah, there's passage. Yeah, there's no, no passage at Shawmut um, or Weston, and and none of the dams have great downstream passage. That's a thing, you know, for salmon smolts, for post-spawn adults, for all these other species. You know, as Jeff said earlier, they're, they're spilling over the dam and some places spilling onto ledge or very shallow water, mm. going through turbines, and you've got to have dedicated downstream passage as well, and that really doesn't exist at, at those sites either. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, and just I'll add, one of those sites, not only doesn't it exist, but there, there will be plans at some of these dams to divert fish away from the turbines and pass them via spill, which should increase their survival. Uh, at Weston, that's not possible, and the long-term plan there is to continue passing fish through the turbines. When did they put in the $15 million one? I want to say it was 2015 or 16. Seven or eight and years this ago. Was, this was part of a contract agreement from many years ago from the relicensing? No, that was part of the, the interim species protection plan um, that was in place for about seven years. And so to comply with that plan, they had to build fish passage. They, they built that one. Yeah. And it hasn't operated. I mean, is it safe to say that Brookfield's really not, like, following through on the, the legal side of, like, having to install these fish passages? Well, I, I think, you know... They definitely want to comply with the Endangered Species Act, and I think the big issue is their plan for compliance is a four-dam, four-fishway solution. Um, NOAA has said that doesn't jeopardize the existence of salmon, um, but there's still a long ways to go at FERC and potentially in the court to resolve that or figure that out. But yeah, I, I, I do think Brookfield would spend the money to put in fishways and screens, to some extent, screen the turbines you know, for at least some of the species and spend a lot of money to do that. It's just, it would be wasted money because it's yeah. not going to work. Um, so I guess there's a good question that I wanted to kind of, I have two questions on that now, but this one, if they can't remove all the dams, like in your mind, what's what's the best case scenario, right? Like say they can remove the first one, but not the next three, right? Like, or could they put, like you talked about, a, I can't keep remember that word. The, the bypass. The bypass yeah. around, thank you. I keep wanting to say diversion the bypass around it. Um, what, what in your mind would be like best case scenario if they don't remove the dams or can just remove one? A, I'd say the fewer the better. Mm. B, I would say there are a few places in the world where there is successful self-sustaining, there are successful self-sustaining runs of sea run fish above one dam. I can't think of any place in the world that there are self-sustaining populations of wild sea run fish above even two. Mm. So I, I can conceive of, I mean, remember, we we signed a settlement agreement for, uh, you know, restore a lot of habitat that's above only a single dam on the Penobscot, and, and we were pretty happy with that agreement, and it's more or less working out as we thought it would. I think passage at Milford's not quite as good as we, had, we, we hoped it would be. Um, but once you're talking about multiple dams, the I think it's the combination of delay and warm impoundments, and four impoundments is more warming than three impoundments, is more than two, is more than one. Um, and also just the chance that something goes wrong, right? So you can make one fishway, and if you take, what's Mother Nature gonna give you, you know, when are you gonna have, the, when's the power gonna go out? When's somebody not gonna show up for work? When's the truck gonna break down? You, you can like work around that at a single site, but if everything's gotta go right at each of four sites, and remember, there is no salmon habitat till you get above the fourth dam. Like, it's not like if they get halfway there, it's ha- you know a third as good as getting all the way there. They really don't reach any suitable habitat until they get all the way to the sandy. So it's got to go right at each of four dams every year, forever, and that's just an awful lot to ask for. Yeah. I think it's a lot to ask for even at two dams, but yeah, at three or four, forget about it. Is and your your sentiment? Similar? Yeah, no, exactly. I think Jeff said it said it very well. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you the dams that come out with the ones that would give you the, the most habitat at each game at each dam, you know. Lockwood's the the worst power producer of the lot, you know, is probably a worthless dam from many standpoints. It needs to go and it, my guess is that will go at some point, but you get a mile of river. 
<laughs> you know, it, it deals with a very significant passage issue upstream and downstream, but you're essentially gaining very little habitat. Yeah. Um, so you've got to get you've got to get fish, you know, into like the stretch between Weston and Shawmut, you know, through the gorge and that stretch of of habitat, and a free flowing stretch through there is going to produce just a ton of blueback herring and American shad versus the impoundment. You know, it's going to be much much less productive for those species. Great. Well, the last question I'll ask you guys: um, What can like what can main folks do about this or like voters or anglers or people who you know have a connection to the river like what what can the average mainer do about do about these things coming up how can we help I, well, I think one one thing is you know if you're supportive of you know restoring fish and making our rivers healthier you know letting folks know whether it's the governor's office or your local legislators important you know Issues on the Kennebec are certainly got a lot of attention, mm. um, positive and negative. And I think letting anyone know who's in any position of authority or decision making, your feelings would be helpful. Um, secondarily, I think, you know, as I think we've talked about on this podcast, you know, understanding what the real, you know, impacts are, positive and negative, um, not buying into you know, the fear mongering that's happened a lot the past few oh, years, yeah. I think is critically important. Yeah. And then officially, you know, there's an opportunity through the Shawmet relicensing to have public comment. Uh, FERC is going to put their draft environmental impact statement out in August. Yep. There will be, I guess, a 60 or 90 day public comment period. Everyone should weigh in, send letters to FERC about yep. your feelings about that. Is that usually something over the internet or is that like a, a public square? Or? They will almost, they should have a public meeting in person. I don't know if they will. Typically, they would for something of this magnitude. They, they did whatever it was four, five, six years ago. They had they had public scoping meetings. Yeah, in Scott Hegan. Scott Hegan, I think. I know I went to a meeting in Scott Hegan. Mm-hmm. So I suspect there would be at least one public meeting, public hearing, and if not, there will be a lengthy period for submitting comments to FERC. Um, no matter how far, no matter where you come down on the issue, and you know, those things do matter to some extent in terms of the decision making at FERC. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say, yeah. follow, following that, there'll be a similar process at DEP for the water quality certificate, which will come probably after FERC issues its final EIS. Okay. And timeline is they're, they're expecting, who knows if they meet these schedules, they often don't. They're expecting to have a draft EIS out in August with a plan to have the final EIS out late winter, early spring, if I remember correctly, February, March. Awesome. Is there anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, well, just want to thank you for inviting us on, Aaron. Yeah, this was good. great conversation. Yeah. yeah, and I really want to thank you guys for two things. One, I I love learning. Um, I love educating myself, and the reason I started this podcast is because I just want to help promote and educate things going on in Maine here. You know, I don't I don't care really talk about what's happening in Pennsylvania. I just what's going on right here in our home state, and you don't want competition down in the Mongo? No, I'm good. Shh. <laughs> I gotta edit that out. Um, <laughs> I'm going straight home to Facebook. There you go. I hear the first week of May is awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Killing all my secrets there. Uh, well, listen, seriously, though, thank you guys. It's, it's been great to learn, and it's nice to, um, you know, sometimes it's nice just to kind of clarify, like you said, all the, like, the media you see or the pop, you know, you get on Facebook, and you can say, hey, how do you guys like my new green car, right? And someone will go, yeah, it's a great car. And someone goes, no, it's a piece of shit. And someone else goes, eh, you know, that's not green. That's, that's blue, right? Like, that's what happens on social media. And with this stuff, you get emotions in there. You're talking about 
jobs, you're talking about fish, you're talking about money, you're talking about hydroelectric, there's all these things, there's all these players. So thank you guys for kind of clarifying your position, right, and like educating just the general general public. It's great. Great. Let us know when it's going to run. We can help promote yeah. it. We'll do. Our extensive contacts list. We'll do. <laughs> we'll get Peter on that. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.